0: Welcome to episode 4 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a Warhammer 40k podcast in which we discuss the fun and narrative ways to play 40k. I am Tony, and tonight I am joined by Dave. Hi Tony. And uh, you're actually all the way over in India tonight, aren't you?
1: I am. My, my work causes me to travel sometimes, and uh, it's um, at the moment it brings me to India, so a good uh, nearly 5,000 miles away from home. But... Uh, that doesn't mean I haven't brought my hobby with me for when um, the times when I'm not working there. And we, I think uh, I'm not breaking the magic to say we're recording this at a weekend. And um,
0: I'm sat in my hotel room with a load of figures
1: and wargaming
0: books around me. But well, it's weirdly a novelty for me as well because uh, I'm recording this at like you know, 8 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> so yeah, really for me, it's about hour. half
1: past 12. so. <laughs> yeah,
0: so this is a, a bit of an unusual one. But, you know, the wonders of technology allow us to do it. Yeah, the magic um, of the internet. And speaking of the magic of the internet, uh, if you have been listening to the podcast, uh, you'll probably heard by now we you mention the other places you can find us, such as, like, the Facebook group. Um, so it would just be worth running through them all now a little bit. So uh, if you have been enjoying the show and um, you want to join in and you know, see our projects firsthand, there's a couple of few things on there from previous PlayStation Garrison's now. Um, you can come join us on Facebook if you just search for the Narrative Wargamer and you'll find the the group on there Um, I am over on Twitter at Narrative40k I'm also on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and we even have a website so if you want to go to uh, narrativewargamer.wordpress.com you can even find a handful of hobby articles and podcasts on there as well Um, and Wherever you're listening, if you have been enjoying the show, then you know leave us some uh, positive reviews, hopefully, and uh, it'll help others find the show. It really does help sort of spread the word um, and helps other people find us on all their different podcasting platforms, iTunes, Podbean, whatever.
1: We're all over the place. Yeah, and those, those positive reviews uh, really do help uh, visibility of the show increase up through the rankings, so um, it, it
0: really is helpful. I mean, it's fair to say that at this point all our feedback has been pretty much universally positive. Like people are really enjoying the show. So that's great. Yeah, it is great. Um, So yeah, so uh, we normally talk about all sorts of things on the show, um, some of the latest news, hobby art, uh, hobby releases. Uh, We talk about our own hobby projects, what we've been up to, discuss some of the games we've been playing recently. Um, Now, you mentioned that uh, you've been taking some of your hobbying along with you over to India. So, even over there, you're you're still committing to the paint station garrison, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I can really call it a paint station garrison, because that
0: implies, uh, like, yours is
1: sat there and doesn't move, right? But (laughs) mine has certainly moved, so perhaps I should call it a paint station patrol, um, (laughs) as they're out (laughs) on manoeuvres with me in India. Um, Although, I did leave some things on the garrison at home, so um, I... I, um, Things I've finished painting recently. I finished the, finally finished the last uh, 20 Gene Stealers from Space Hulk, which I've done uh, mostly with contrast paints. So um, uh, it was really nice to finish them because I've done the unit of five uh, Blood Angels uh, a couple of months ago as well, you know, the Blood Angels Terminators. Um, so I've got, uh, I need to, I need to try and have a game of Space Hulk now. I've got a fully painted miniatures for those, <laughs> so that should be a, a good veteran night. Uh, maybe I'm sure I can find somebody at my in my club who want to uh, pick that up and have that I go, a go at that again um it's always good to bring out those kind of games um i finished out oh i stuff, so i'm finished very quickly the the I bought the the night haunt endless spells for for age of sigma to go with my uh, night haunt army that i talked about before uh, and i've got a few more night haunt bits ready to go but i managed to finish painting the endless spells and uh, they came out really nice all of that night haunt stuff um, uh, i'm painting it for age of sigma first but um, as i get on with my um, Black like Legion, uh, which I've, I've built quite a lot of recently, before I travelled. Um, I'm going to going to use those as as demon allies, um, so so proxy demons with the
0: the night horn figures, especially the champions oh, that's, for the, that's a cool sports. idea. i would not thought about that. They could. Um, and be, yeah, sorry, go, Tony. They they could probably make some good like um, furies, you know, these like generic yeah. chaos demons.
1: That's right. Uh, that, that that was the first thing I was thinking of because, particularly with with Black Legion being more um, chaos undivided, um, although they do have the you know components of the the force that worship the different chaos gods. But um, th- those were the first thing I was thinking. But of course, we, you know they're proxies, so proxy for anything, right? <laughs> um, I uh, one of the things I bought actually for Age of Seymour to support that army is is some of the old plastic skeletons which have uh, people feel mixed about them some people think they're kind of monopose <laughs> and don't really like them uh, and it is true that they are kind of monopose, but they they've gone down really quickly um, I've got 10 finished already and another 20 nearly finished uh, to, to support them and, and who doesn't like generic skeletons <laughs> they've got all kinds of uses in all kinds of games so I thought getting a, a lot of skeletons painted up would be good and then, uh, finally, I think I posted these on the group. I uh, did something for my uh, Imperial Guard Army uh, that I managed to get finished, which is five uh, Ratskin snipers. So uh, they're not the Games Workshop ones, though. These these are ones that uh, were sculpted by, by a chap I know online. i met met several times in different places, Into. And uh, Into sculpted these and had a limited run-cast invasion. And, in fact, they are they are little, <laughs> little ratlings, but... Um, you, you can barely see them at all, because they're, they're fully, fully dressed in ghillie suits with just like visors on, and uh, I think there's only the, the squad leader that's got his face exposed.
0: Well, uh, when I first saw those, I actually thought they were some older GW rattling yeah. sculpts that then had like a lot of green stuff work done for the ghillie suits. Yeah. So they definitely yeah, fit yeah. the traditional rattling aesthetic.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I, I just love them. Uh, the, the second squad I painted, the first one uh, I painted about a year, a year and a bit ago, um, using traditional methods, and they came out really nice, I was very happy with them. Uh, but the contrast paints, for something like that, where you've got an awful lot of texture, th- those ghillie suits really are it's just covered in texture. I don't know how he's managed to get them cast in resin at all, <laughs> because they, they're just, they, uh, there's so much detail has come out on uh, but that really lends itself to to the contrast paints, which which will work very similar to an ink in in this particular regard and gone into the depths of all those areas. But then left a nice uh, lighter colour, and in this case, I've done the the, the suits in like a sort of tan, brown, sort of leafy, autumn leafy sort of colour, and um, they, they they just work really well with that particular kind of sculpt. So so I'm quite pleased with them. So that's. Uh, Another squad to to build that force of Imperial Guard that I was talking about last time, where um, I'm trying to build a, a force with lots of different um, things in there, um, lots of different ends of different regiments, and um, th- th- I've been thinking about it a bit more since since we last recorded. And I think I, I quite like the idea of it being a little bit abhuman heavy. So, so that, that was one of the reasons I picked the vaskins up off the shelf and, and got those painted.
0: Ooh, if you were to do that, maybe it might be worth. Getting some um, say Goliath models from Necromunda and using them as some guardsmen because they are almost in a weird way a bit abhumany.
1: They are they they're so you know they 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 supposed to be background?
0: Well, it it's meant to be that they're they're pumped full of like growth stems so okay. basically like from birth. So they they're not literally background. They are. Uh, I think maybe one or two of them are, but I think the majority okay. of them. Uh, just really, really enhanced, but um, right. obviously, after generations of it they 've practically become almost a subspecies of human in themselves. yeah, yeah, and they
1: they do move halfway towards the algrees i've seen i 've seen on say, some Necromunda groups conversions that are done with with green bits that, that fit quite well with with the uh, goliaths so they they do
0: have that that halfway size right yes the basic yeah they're kind of hard to explain they 're almost what you imagine like an Astartes would look like if he was out of his power armor. Right. Like that kind of just like sheer, bulked, muscular structure of a human. But these guys are a little bit more um, non-perfectly proportioned, if that makes sense. You know, they're a bit over-exaggerated in proportions. whereas whenever you see these like diagrams of a space marine, they're still pretty much like Da Vinci-style perfect human proportions. Goliaths are not that. Okay.
1: They're a little bit just top heavy. Yeah, Goliaths are not one of the factions I have really explored in New Necromunda yet. And uh, I do do have a gang of the old Necromunda Goliaths, but they are much more human sized.
0: (laughs) So uh, were those the ones that you sort of got done before your trip out? Um, to India or those so are yeah they are kind of
1: the things that i they're the things that I finished uh, before
0: I went oh, away've yes, left of course,
1: yeah yeah I've left some things on my paint garrison still at home. I've got more skeletons as we talked about i, I I'm not really made any progress on my bo- bo- goblins despite the fact we talked about them last time they're they're still there um, uh, manning the manning the garrison uh, I made a bit more progress on I've got a crimson fish chaplain uh, than I'm halfway through painting and uh, he's, uh, he's coming together very nicely. But the very old Metal Mini um, from Rogue Trader here, one of the original chaplains, uh, which has got a built-in metal banner pole, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, but that's, he's coming together quite nicely. has yeah. love
0: recently as well, so... You know, I yeah, think,
1: absolutely. Uh, well, they're in the White Dwarf, and they've got a bit of a mention in the, the new stuff that I'm sure we'll talk about later, right?
0: Have you seen the, um, the new reimagining of the Rogue Trader artwork? I haven't. No, kind of uh, I, can't uh, remember where I saw. Sorry, it was somewhere on the Warhammer community. I'm sure, but um, okay. they've basically they recreate. There's a, a new commissioned piece of Games Workshop artwork that's yep. basically um, a cinematic recreation of the Games of Last Stand. So they've got like a marine holding the orc head, wearing the, the, the spiked helmet, and firing the bolters, and the guy with the banner, and they're all sort of like half falling over each other in the last stand. But right, okay. It's all set with the new Primaris Marines integrated in the artwork. Okay, so There's, a, there's it, a mix of regular and Primaris Marines?
1: Yes, it is actually a
0: mix, which I think is one of the really nice things about it. Is that it's um, a, one of the newer newer pieces of Space Marine artwork that actually still includes the original Tactical Marines, because I think okay. it's meant to be more emphasising this brothers in arms thing. You know, even though we're a, you know a little bit different generationally, we're still defending-to-the-last-together sort of thing. Yeah, but it's a, I it's shall really, have to go and look that up. Yeah, it's a really clever idea and, like, you know, good recreation of a classic piece of artwork reimagined.
1: Yeah, it really fits with my uh, <laughs> the same similar theme to, to my Crimson Fist army that I've got already. Uh, about two years ago, I painted up uh, about 1,500 points of, of infantry-heavy uh, Crimson Fists that were a mix of of old marines and, and primaris marines so uh, really a lot of the the marines out of the first box that came so a mix of intercessors and hel- uh, hel- um... oh i've forgotten the name of the ones with the plasma hellblasters Hellblasters, thank you <laughs> that shows you how long it is since i've used them <laughs> um uh, as well as tactical marines and assault marines for crimson fists uh, and then then a few leaders a couple of lieutenants these chaplains for that force as i've just mentioned a primary psyche that I, I use quite a lot actually <laughs> so uh, what else have I left at home the angry marines have not had much love this month um, they, they'd say it's sat at the back uh, neither is the rainbow way tech marine but he's still sat there but i bought brought a load of stuff with me i bought brought nearly 70 built and primed miniatures with me which sounds quite a lot but then i bought all my contrast paints too and then just a few other things black and white and flesh and metallics to try and crack on quickly with a load of stuff uh, while I was here. And I've already finished uh, 16 miniatures, uh, and I've got another, uh, look at them now, another 16 that are nearly done. So um, I may have been a, bit, a little bit over-ambitious with 70, but I think I'll, I'll get a good 40 done by the time I go home, I think. Um, I didn't bring any basic materials, so I don't, I don't usually share work-in-progress picks, but expect uh, uh, <laughs> the internet should, the places I usually put, pu- pu- photos of completed miniatures should expect a bit of an incoming blast when i get home and just uh, crack through the basin quite quickly but it's it's an interesting mix of stuff that i brought with me i think um there's not anything here that's that's directly games workshop miniatures apart from one squad of rogue trader eldar guardians or know, the guardians or the um, pirates the the old metal oh, the says. A bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah that's right so I'm going to paint them up as dark guardians for my slowly building lr force. try and get those up to 500 points of painted.
0: I'm just curious, but what is your sort of like painting setup then that you've got going in the hotel?
1: Uh, yeah, I'll take a picture of it uh, and, and post it on the on the group uh, uh, later after we finish recording the podcast. But in essence, uh, I've got a desk in my hotel room here. Uh, it's actually a glass top desk, but it, it, that doesn't really matter. And uh, I get a newspaper every day. So on the first day, the Times of India was spread out on my desk. <laughs> exactly the same ones we want to cover that, right? And, uh, and that, you know, that's the protective surface that we all use. I didn't bring a cutting mat or anything like that. Um, and I brought a bundle of bushes, brushes and my, um, my set of paints, of course. And then I've, I've just laid them out on top of that. There's a little desk lamp. That's quite good. I can swing that around and bring it over the top. So I've got some focused light. It's not a daylight bulb, uh, but it's, it's good enough for painting with contrast paints or when I know what the color combinations are that I want to achieve. And, um. Days is less of a problem in India, so we're much closer, I'm much closer to the equator right now. So the difference between night and day at length between summer and winter is um, is much less than we get in the UK. So um, if I'm about during the day, especially at weekends, of course, uh, when I'm not working, uh, I've got a lot more natural light available to me, with quite a large window in the, in the hotel room that we stay in. So um, the setup for painting is actually pretty good. Um, and then I just lay my miniatures out in the the way I prefer to 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 batch paint
0: them. It sounds like you've got quite a good little travelling setup there.
1: Yeah, yeah, and there's there's no particular. I've not brought um, like a paint station or anything like that. I've just kind of made my own uh, just, just out of bits. And of course, there's always uh, glasses and things like that to put water in. I just try and make sure I do wash them out thoroughly and don't leave paint in the hotel glasses. Uh, <laughs> um uh the one thing I didn't pack any of is and I've done this before is I didn't bother packing a, a paint palette a mixing palette of any kind and that's because um in India I drink a lot of water to keep your hydration up it's, it's, it's either quite humid or quite hot um so i I use the sides of the plastic bottles that we get uh, <laughs> given in the hotel that's as a good uh, idea. Yeah, yeah they're gonna get thrown away anyway so I just reuse them a little bit more before they actually get thrown away
0: the one i occasionally use for stuff like that is um coasters if it looks like okay. that's um sort of like you know disposable coasters that are not really going to get reused or cleaned or washed out or whatever they're going to be choked then i'm yeah. sure they you know don't help, mind you taking a coaster and using that as a pallet yeah yeah absolutely
1: um I yeah i have done in the past but usually there's some kind of strip or off-cut or of plastic if i bought a a magazine that comes in a plastic cover or, or, or you know
0: find a way or to um, cut out a
1: section of that to use or all these or kind e- of things right
0: even the side of um like a a product box say like from gdp yeah. or whatever like if you've recently bought a, a kit and you're building it and painting it you can probably yeah. use the side of that cardboard box
1: yeah if that's the kind of hobby you bought with you i i have not bought anything any building with me this time i i actually um I took a small risk this time. I, did, I wanted to try and minimise the amount of space I bought, so the miniatures I brought wrapped up in tea towels <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just gently. But and, and they've been absolutely fine. Uh, you know, they've got enough uh, padding and buffering They were packed in amongst clothes uh, as I've flown, um, and they they came out absolutely fine when I got here. It does help that quite a lot of them are like the Elder Guardians I've just described, are uh, kind of monopose metals, uh, which ha- helps quite a lot. Uh, and actually. I've only just realised as we're talking now, and I look at them, Tony, everything I've brought with me is uh, is actually metal, <laughs> uh, and quite a lot of it is monopose. I, I, I didn't do that deliberately, <laughs> I've done that on accident. That's just how it? it's worked out. But there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they were the prime miniatures that were on my shelf, ready to be be pulled and used, yeah. So.
0: Cool. Well, uh, uh, I think with that then it'll be worth jumping over to what I've been working on. Um, so, like, the, the main thing really that I've been working on since the last episode is the looted Orc Goliath truck that I've been working on for my dev goals, And I am pleased to say that in the time it's taken between recordings, I've taken that truck and I've got it from primed to finished. So I'm really pleased with that, actually. Um, when I initially set it out last episode I wasn't 100% sure whether or not I would get it all done by the next episode but it was finished the other day so I'm really pleased with that outcome
1: yeah you posted this on the Facebook group right and it, it does yes. really nice you've got the weathering coming through in, in the way that you talked about we talked about last time right on how you were doing that blue. yeah
0: and uh, if you've been following me on Twitter and Instagram you'll see that I've posted um, like one or two little stage by stage bits for the weathering um I had um, Stormgrad Gaming actually asked me um, about the stages, so I decided to uh, show him, you know. People were interested, so I posted it. So I was quite pleased with that. And um, I've sort of like cracked the code now, I think, for my paint scheme. Like, you know, I've got the recipe down, and I know what I'm doing now with my dev skulls. So if I pick up anything in the army range, be it infantry, vehicle, flyer, walker, Whatever, you know, Grot, Orc, or moss, doesn't matter. I know how to apply my paint scheme now to that model. Yes. I've painted enough things and enough variations across kits that I sort of have a predetermined recipe or technique for all of it now, which means that the rate that I'm painting is increasing, which is great. Um, so it's great that I've got that Goliath truck finished. Um, I'm really pleased with how quickly I turned that around and um, the result looks great. I'm really pleased with it. But at the same time, alongside that, in the last episode, I'd started working on the Gorgonaut. And it's still on my paint station at the moment, so that's what I'm I'm working on right now. Uh, But I feel like I've got a lot done on it with actual very little time investment because this has been kind of like my side piece. So just when I find some time at home and I've got a moment to do some painting, I just pick it up, do a little bit more, you know, do the next bit of metallics, do the next bit of uh, washing, do the next bit of the armour plates, whatever. And it's weird. At the moment, it feels like I haven't, really spent any dedicated time with it. I haven't said I'm right, I need to be painting my coconut and feeling bad that I'm not. That hasn't happened yet. I've just been sat here working on it bit by bit and not even really thinking about it and yet progress is really just coming along and it's great. Is that because you
1: got past what I I quite often think to myself as being the dithering phase, the time where you you sit looking at a miniature thinking what is it going to look like when it's painted? Uh, yes,
0: that's exactly it.
1: Like, that was yeah. that exactly the sensation that I had for a long time with my orcs. Yeah, and I, I, I've, I've had that a lot with armies as well. I'm starting a new army. I know what I want to do. I have to do some research. I have to do some looking up before I started the Blood Angels. I pulled out all my old Blood Angels codices, you know, the old second edition Angels of Death and the new Blood Angels codices, and looked how I wanted to paint. And even though I got assembled and primed minches and and I started to get some red down, I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure exactly where I wanted to take them or how they wanted to look. But once I get over that, I get exactly that same feeling that you just described, um, and I'm doing it now. I'm painting some um, space dwarfs. Um, that I got from Hassle Free Miniatures Grim range. And I'm doing them with, with uh, red and gold. Um, and uh, they do look like a future fighting force for virgin galactic to be quite honest but uh, i quite <laughs> like the <this> scheme <game. laughs> i have finally come together on a scheme that i like as i've done them but i i have spent literally years dithering about how to paint these guys uh, and just not being able to figure out in my head what they should look like and i've got about five or six different trial schemes that have never worked but now uh, i'm in india and i've finished 10 of these i've got another 10 that are nearly finished because i'm just cracking through them because i've, I've got her to exactly that same place that you described with your oaks i know what they to look, look like I know, know what the scheme is I know the sequence of colours I need to lay down to get them right and then one or two have just got small variations like the flame and nozzle or whatever is that, that how you're feeling about your, your Orcs yeah. and the
0: now so it's like because originally when we started with them we'd be like right let's start with some Orc boys and just getting that first unit of 10 done every stage I had to question it I was like right how am I going to do the skin how am I going to do the next bit of the skin how am I going to do the armour plates how am I going to do the weapons how am I going to do the extra details, like the chequered patterns, the dogtooths, the got dog glyphs, whatever. Then I'm like, right, I've done that, cool. Then I'll do a character model. So i like, right, I'll do a weird boy next. Now I know that I like to put a little more time into character models than the rank and files. So it'd be right, yeah. okay, how do I do an extra highlight on the skin? How do I do an extra level of detail on the straps and the leather? What am I gonna do with the Weird Boy stuff? I've not painted like the coppery colour yet. Um and then I've done that, I did my first orc truck and I was like, right, how do I apply this paint scheme to a vehicle? What is too much armor plating? What is not enough? What do I do with an orc rocket? I've not had to paint one of those yet, you know, how do I actually want right. to paint the like the explosive head on the rocket? What do I want to do with the tires? I've not had to paint tires before. Um but now, I seem to have hit probably 90% of all the different painting aspects that I'm going to encounter across the army. So, you know, I've, I've picked up the Gorknaut now, just gone straight in with doing the, um, like, the exoskeleton, not exoskeleton, the framework. Like, because I know how I'm going to do my two different tones and layers of metallics for the arms and the legs, straight on the armour plates. I know how I'm going to do blue armor plates here and there i know where i'm gonna include spot colors like black armor plates it's got some oil drums on the back of it well i've painted a couple of oil drums now so i know how i'm going to do that what kind of yellow i'm going to use for those you know so i don't have to stop and think about it i just do it yeah because i've done it previously on some of my other models so now i just feel like i'm really starting to pick up the pace with it and it's just it's a great feeling
1: yeah yeah, absolutely. And it, it does, I mean, the more armors you paint, you, you tend to get sets of colors. You then know how to do it. You may be painting something else in the future, and you want battered blue armor.
0: You'll know how to do that straight away, right? Yeah, exactly Like right. uh, how uh, I spent a while on the first vehicle deciding how to apply the weathering to it because I thought I could easily do too little or too much on this. I need to find what that balance is like an armour plate on a robot, board is one armour plate like it's just on his shoulder or his chest or whatever it's not really going to be too much or too little but yeah. when my truck is almost entirely blue armour how do I break that up and how do I break it up without destroying the effects by doing too much you know what I mean yeah
1: yeah. but now you've got it in your head you're fine and that, that's something when I've talked to people about painting when I when I used to live in Sheffield we I was part of a painting group in Sheffield called Sheffield Irregulars, which is really only exists online anymore now, really, really well physically. There's a Facebook group for that as well if, if people are interested. That's one of the places I post my miniatures. Uh, but, but that was a common experience I found. I found myself... Uh, if, if you do put in the 16, 20 hours on a single miniature, um, I, I, just as others can, I, I can achieve really high level effects. But entering miniature painting competitions is, is to, to, to get that kind of thing, or, or the thought of painting whole armies with that kind of amount of investment of time was not something that, that really appealed to me. I wanted to paint whole armies. Uh, uh, as as we've just described, uh, so I, I put some effort into to trying to learn how to do that more efficiently, and a lot of the things that you're describing, uh, some of the learnings that I've done is I've, I've uh, gained experience as a painter, and um, but those common uh, the common thing that comes out that people get frustrated or don't enjoy the painting quite so much is is to to develop that style for an army you have to go through exactly that process that you've just described that, that we both just described, and. Um, and that can be a bit off-putting for some people who, who don't enjoy it quite so much. And they, they, until you get to that tipping point that you, you you've obviously found after you finish this truck, um it feels like an almost impossible task because you've got such a huge thing. But anybody who's trying to do it, you really should stick in there because because you do hit that tipping point, you do suddenly it suddenly comes together, and then like Tony just you just described there, Tony, you, you're painting a gaucho and it's easy.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Like I originally would have thought, it would have been quite an intimidating large model to do, um, but it's really not. I'm just really, really loving it, and I'm happy enough with it at the moment to probably post some, you know, work in progress pics on my socials, so you'll be able to see it shortly. Um, but you know, this guy really, so he's the uh, he really is the paint station garrison at the moment because he's he's pretty much sat watching as I work on other main projects, and he just gets picked up every now and again, but I'm still impressed by how quickly I'm getting through him, even though he's pretty much just my side project. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, with the Goliath finished, the next thing up on my paint station is the first of the Death Wreckers, which is my unit of Beganops. So, um, I'm going to do them in... I have six of them to do, but I'm going to do them in two sets of three, because uh, they are quite large models. Um, they're similar to my Warboss in that they're all built out of Gasgol Fracker as the base of the model. Which, which Gasgol Fracker? The new uh, one? The, the, well, the latest one, yes. Okay. The yeah. Big armored fine gas guy. Um, okay. So, you know, they are quite chunky pieces. And to be honest, they're almost, there's sort of like a midpoint between, say, a Sentinel and a Dreadnought. They're not quite as big as a Dreadnought, so they don't feel like a full vehicle paint, but they do feel like quite an extensive model to get done, like more so than just a Terminator. So I'm gonna uh, tackle them three at a time rather than all six, because I think it'd be a bit much to try and do six
1: at once. Yeah, you do need to try and find ways to keep yourself sane when you batch paint in. And if you try and take on too many all at once, if you're not comfortable with that, it's a bit more always much better to reduce that number and make it more uh, feasible to to get through them. Especially those 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 miniatures have got a fair amount of detail on them, right? Uh, yeah, so they that can do. always be a little bit. That's one of the things that slows you down. I well, one of the things that slows me down anyway. If I've got some things that are simple to paint that, that don't have too much depth of detail. The thing that pops to mind, actually, is Makes. I find uh, a different game But uh, when I'm playing, painting figures for Battletech. Um, I find them relatively straightforward to paint. I mean, it's only four or five figures for for whole force, usually, to, 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 for the length of games that I, I usually play at that, and I find them really easy to do because although the miniatures have got detail on, it's a, a bit of a simple of a, a paint and a wash and maybe add some detailing or camo or whatever. But, but that feels quite different than doing something complex like a like the chaplain, like the crimson fish chaplain we talked about earlier. That's uh, that's quite the old. It's an old metal miniature. It's quite small and it's got lots and lots of little bits of detail. Like and 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 that slows down your painting and can make it frustrating if you're trying to do too many of those detail miniatures in batch. Uh,
0: then the other thing that does really really help your motivation is posting on social media. Like I can honestly say the like the flood of likes and such that I get with some of these progress pics on Instagram, it really does just help perk you up. It helps you uh, feel validated in the time and effort that you're putting into these things. So I'd, if people aren't trying it themselves, I'd definitely recommend getting themselves an Instagram account just for, you know, like working progress pics. And uh, it's surprising how much people do enjoy them and want to see them. I mean, like the amount of, um, positive feedback I got for the Goliath truck, even just in the context of the conversion. I think there were a lot of people that were just really interested to see, like, a gene sealer vehicle that had been looted. So yeah. there was a, a lot of uh, positive feedback on that, and that was great.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the first uh, first gene sealer vehicle I've seen uh, looted for Hawks, well, uh,
0: and it's yeah. come together really nicely. N- next on the list is going to be the new Admec. Uh, vehicle I, I definitely want to do that and put some uh, looters literal looters in the back of it yeah yeah that'll
1: look nice i always used to like from the older editions the the trucks uh that you used to be able to get as many boys on as possible
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, the rule was that you could if they they didn't fall off they were allowed to
0: get in the vehicle that was the transport capacity uh, so, yeah, so I think that is about the extent of the PlayStation garrison and what we've been working on hobby-wise for the past couple of weeks. So I think we'll take a quick break there, and then we'll jump into games played. Right, guys, we're back, and we're now going to be talking about the games that, well, not that we've played, but that Dave has played. Because, unfortunately... Okay. Yeah, I've not had a chance to actually get in any games for forty case since so the last show. Um I'm hoping I will be getting one sometime I don't think next week the weekend after. Like I've got something lined up, so I'm looking forward to that. But um yes, you've uh you've had a couple of interesting games that you want to talk about, haven't you, Dave? So why don't you dive straight into that?
1: Yeah. I just reached out uh, to my club. My club's uh one of those where we don't we don't tend to have pick up games but we tend to use a Facebook group to, to arrange games in advance um, and, and then book a table to play them on because we've got we got limited space we can't fit in more than about um, eight six by four tables um, just just so it's fair we, pre, we try and pre-book that um, so I use that to to reach out to some friends and, and arrange games so the first one I, I decided you know particularly after we talked on the last episodes and you uh, brought to the fore, reminded me clearly of of how much I I actually enjoy playing space marines. Um, Mm. I decided to uh, pull out all my space marines and see what I got and decided to build a renegade space marine force. So that is to say space marines that are maybe a little bit disillusioned with their chapters or the Imperium. Of course that never happens right or at least they never discuss it but um <laughs> it makes for, for a great story where they've come together with a couple of different squads uh, from a couple of different chapters that all, all build up into a, a size wall of 50 in this case a and fifty-point um and um so, so I built a list that was built around tactical marines because I figured maybe it won't be the specialists, maybe it'll be the you know the rank and file troopers who get a bit more disillusioned with 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 their lot in life, and they've they've not turned to the ruinous powers, they've not turned their backs on the mankind, they just don't really enjoy fighting for the Imperium anymore. So they they've gone off and
0: yeah, they're, they are more them. just renegades than chaos Yeah,
1: beings. Absolutely. So, so I built it around. Uh, quite quite heavily with troops uh, to, to to follow that theme, and then a couple of charismatic leaders who who are the ones who've led them away from their chapters. And I, I deliberately avoided chaplains because I thought well, chaplains are the guys that that keep people in chapters, right? And if they've they've had an extended period without spiritual support, maybe that's what's led them to this.
0: So, um, oh, so that's a, a cool couple idea because of... like, I I normally typically hear the story of like you know the chaplains refused to turn they refused to join in so they were you know killed yeah. by the brothers but the idea that they've actually been without chaplains for a while and that's what's yeah, caused so them to actually lose touch with the faith yeah that's, that's a, a very interesting a, approach
1: a couple of squads and their lieutenant out on an extended campaign for a decade or 15 years whatever it is and they've just not had enough spiritual input and they've met similarly minded other space marines and that's that's what's led them down the path so that's a really cool uh, idea yeah so i just pulled them out of my existing armies really in in all honesty mostly the miniatures i'd already got painted which which also was a a convenience as well but it got me to a place where i got a force and uh, a load of moons that were already painted uh, fairly quickly so um a couple of tactical squads of my uh rainbow warriors of course led by a a charismatic primaries lieutenant um the um I've got um an, an old squad of the plastic uh rtb01 uh white scars uh white scars from before chogris was a thing <laughs> which uh, again dates me but i think we've already established i've been playing this game uh, and, and led by an old um metal uh terminator uh, that i painted up as a terminator captain for white scars with a thunder hammer and a storm shield and uh, he's still a little bit of a beast he moves slowly at five inches a turn but when he gets into combat he's quite devastating (laughs) um the um i I put in uh, a couple of squads of crimson fists um i've got some stormlords that i painted some time ago um and and a few dark angels as well so the storm Lords are also led by a, a terminator captain um with um this is the old cloud runner model uh, the old metal Cloudrunner model and, and maybe not many metal uh, many many listeners will remember this one but it's one of the first uh, Terminator Captain uh, uh, figures that was originally sort of intended to be a Deathwing figure although it didn't really have any of the Deathwing specific iconography and it was a generic space marine captain. Um, so so um, Yes, quite a lot of my age showing in this in this particular force. Now, I've, I've already put up a, a picture of that force on, on the Facebook group, if anyone who wants to see it. Uh, that was, was for my first battle. So um, uh, who I, did
0: you play against?
1: So I played against uh, one of our clubmates called uh, James, and he brought um, custodies uh, which seemed thematic and suitably <laughs> narrative, hunting down renegade space brains. Uh, and following the discussions that we had last time, uh, I also had a conversation before uh, with him, and we decided to play the the geothermal eruption battle zone. Yeah. So the one with the creeping lava. The lava field, yeah. one of my all-time favorite battle zones. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, now I, I didn't make a proper note of the mission. I tried to look it up before before this recording. I couldn't figure out which one <laughs> it was. So maybe hopefully you can remember, Tony. <laughs> but we we played a mission. Uh, and it was a proper mission, I just don't remember which one it was, uh, where we had uh, one objective marker each in our back zone um, and we the, the victory condition was that you had to have as many, more models uh, within three inches of the objective marker than your opponent. To, but you only scored the victory condition right at the very end.
0: Uh, uh, the so is it a end of game, whoever controls the most objectives but That's there's only right. like two objectives. One in each right. deployment zone. Yeah, yeah I, I, uh, I can't remember if there is a name, it's specifically for that one, but I do know the kind of mission you're on about. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure all our listeners will know, know what I'm talking about. Yeah, like, if anyone knows, but... then definitely you know, leave a comment below.
1: <laughs> yep, <Yeah>, absolutely. <laughs> but um, I'm sure everybody will understand the type of mission played, and we actually, we actually rolled to see how it was, uh, and we actually were playing uh, long ways, so uh, end-to-end with the, the, the funny triangle-shaped deployment zone. Not that that really mattered very much, but the, the main effect of that the, was that the lava was coming in from a long edge rather than a short edge, uh, using the geothermal. Oh, that's interesting. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we had just had mixed fairly heavy scattered scenery. Um, and, um, and, and what he brought, of course, is I've described what I had, but he got, um, the, um, Captain Valar, uh, um, Ge- Valoris. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Treasure Lord, that's right. Uh, Shield Captain um, in in the fancy armor. Um, he got um, he got a couple of custodian guard squads um, and a uh, dreadnought, and he got some uh, some of those jet bikes, the Virtus Praetors, I want to say, yeah, but I'm not sure that's right. Um, cheesy cheesy jet bikes. Cheesy cheesy jet bike. Although against against mass tactical squads, they were they were less effective than than you would. Then you do normally see them, although we 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 did it was a fluffy game we weren't we weren't intending to to either win or lose. In fact, to be honest, I we played on a Friday night after a long week at work, and I I I was playing a large force of tactical Marines. I kind of expected to lose in fairly short order, uh, but that that's not really the way it turned out. But uh, as I'll describe. Um, so we we played with a lava the keeping him from the edge, um, you know. He ran at me fairly quickly, and I t- I took a kind of defensive position in the back. I didn't have really good lines of sight because the the terrain had been set up between us, and we were kind of half thinking we were thinking we'd be playing we were playing the other way around. So it, it kind of messed with lines of sight and things like that, particularly for my heavy weapons. Um, but I, but I had enough line of sight that I started uh, pinging away, taking taking wounds off things, and I I did actually have a, a couple of um, land speeders myself that I was able to to bring around the side and and start threatening in his backfield, um, which, you know, they, they, they lasted, they lasted into turn four, which was longer than I expected, but they eventually just Mm -hmm. got a little bit too close and taken apart. (laughs) Um, and, but he, he, he came forward. I managed to get a lot of heavy weapon shots into, into the, the dreadnought and took that out because I really didn't want to get into combat with that. Um, and, and he, but he'd left left a few th- items in his backfield, and quite a few uh, of the t- the Terminator squads in 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 reserve, ready to to, to teleport striking uh, into battle. Um, and then the lava starts creeping from well from my left as we'd set up, um, and that, that was really interesting to see that play the the, the whole thing when you read. Uh, the geothermal eruption battle zone is you, you can see immediately you, you, you're rolling a d6 and choosing which one uh, which marker is going to move until they've all moved and the thing of you know moving your own shorts and moving the the ones that you want to do the things that you want to protect moving those lava shorts and moving the the sort of the, the lava when you roll high to to sort of attack your opponent was definitely a, a thing that we had but it also we knew it would not I had a feeling it would sort of push us to one side of the board. But that it had a, it did do that. It funneled uh, a lot of things down uh, because it kept having to move away. Everything kept having to move away from the lava. Uh, but it also kind of opened up fire fire lanes in a, a way that we didn't expect because as the lava starts to touch scenery, you take the scenery off the board. Um, and, and a couple of times we did manage to um, take out um, each other's... Uh, models by, by advancing the lava where we were just uh, a little bit too close. So uh, a number of models fell to the the creeping geothermal eruption, uh, more so than we thought. And, and one of the effects there is if a model touches the lava, it doesn't matter about wounds or anything like that, the model is gone. It's <laughs> <You're> dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I uh, so did quite a... I, and uh, Trajan Valorius was one of the people I managed to get with the lava.
0: <laughs> really? <laughs> left the,
1: a, uh... It, uh, he left him in a bad position. I, I got a six, and he was five and a half inches away from the lava. So. <laughs> oh,
0: what what yeah. an inglorious end to the uh, Legion Custodes.
1: Uh, but I managed to keep some of his some of his guys back. I'd got a, a five-man assault squad of uh, Dark Angels, which I, I put into his backfield and flew around harassing, and they they kept back one of his his.
0: Um, custodian guard squads that he was trying to protect you mentioned you had land speeders and he had jet bikes was there a point yeah. at any point in the game where there were any units that were flying over the top of the ladder
1: yeah yeah my land speeders his jet bikes he brought in into my face uh, and to get into close combat quickly um which uh, they engaged with the tactical white scars they more or less wiped out the, the tactical white scars uh, but the, but then were swamped by by other things coming in um which which didn't really get them very much, but the, you know they have got quite a large number of wounds. I think it's four wounds each, so it took a while to, it took two or three turns to actually to to get through them in that in that way. How but yes, we had feel... we did.
0: Yeah, how did it feel having your land speeders hovering around on the lava?
1: Uh kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it, it 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 could look kind of impressive and. Um, because they were over the lava, that's what I meant about opening up the fire lanes. So, so I'd equip them with the, the normal heavy bolters, uh, just the, the heavy three shots off those. But, uh, pinging away against against his units was, was really quite useful and distracting, and it meant he couldn't ignore them completely, uh, especially as they were threatening his objective. Or at least they were threatening his objective until the point that lava took it out, which meant that by the end of the game we were fighting around the objective on my side of the table. Um, and it was just piling in swarm after swarm of tactical marines uh, into his units to just keep them at bay. Um, and it it got down to the point where you know uh, we got an extended turn uh, on the first downfall where we did there, and we'd we'd whittled down quite a lot. He'd just got a couple of terminator units. I'd still got about three tactical units, maybe remnants or a scout squad, um, and um, and a couple of heroes left. And um, the, the the Thunderhammer Terminator captain um, de- did a really good job at uh, working his way through through his heroes uh, a little bit. Um, but it, at the end, it came right back to um, I was just about out of models, but I had held the objective. I, I was holding the objective, and we rolled for turn seven. And um, turn seven came up, and then he was able to wipe me off the, <laughs> the objective. Yeah. But... That's okay. It was a it was a fluffy game. Of course, I didn't mind losing, and but I to, to get to that point where if it had have finished at that point, I would have won, um, and because it went on a little bit longer, I didn't. Uh, I that really surprised me. Uh, the geothermal stuff really added to the dynamics of the game. It forced us to do things and to think on our feet. Um, which which made it great fun uh trying to understand an intense game uh, and, and how we would adapt into it there's an awful lot of close combat uh, a little bit more than either was expected I think if they'd not use the battle zone uh, actually we 'd probably have been more shooting at range to try and take each other out <laughs> and, um, and the, the fact that with with just a mass of troops with a mass of six units of tactical marines and two two scout squads of fire each um actually I held custodies to you know last night of the game, sort of outcome.
0: Um, a a glorious game. last stand in front of the lava. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely, sounds awesome. Like, so, what, what? How do you feel um, your opponent enjoyed using the lava fields? Or like, because you've mentioned before, you've struggled to convince some people to try it. Yeah. What was yeah, his yeah. thoughts after the game?
1: Yeah, well, because we we approached it here first as a fun fun game. It wasn't. It didn't take him by surprise. He knew what he was. So he was able to read about it before. So, uh, you know, that went down better uh, rather than just set, suggesting it ad hoc. Uh, but, yeah, we really enjoyed it. We,
0: we talked about it afterwards uh, uh, in the car park outside after they closed the, the, the up. Oh, yeah. We're still talking about yeah, it. Yeah, you're still talking 40K while they're trying to stack the yeah. chairs and kicking you out the door.
1: Exactly. There, and, uh, <laughs> uh, but it, we really enjoyed it. We agreed it's not something you'd want to play every time. Uh, oh, no, no. It is, By no means. it is different and disruptive. Uh, but it made, it added some intensity, some pressure uh, to the game, and it made us think more. It, it made us adapt uh, and worry about, worry about the terrain. It added friction. So when when I when I play ancients games, uh, which I, I do a little bit, uh, when I'm playing, um, uh, say, um, Hail Caesar with with my Romans from. Warlords game to to do with ancient battles there's a concept in there called it's a game concept we don't call it friction in that game but the idea is you're not guaranteed to be able to do what you want to do yeah Um, which means that you have to think on your feet and, and take into account some of the Things that might not go wrong. So it's the same as when you're playing Blood Bowl, perhaps, uh, and you've got an ogre team. You can't really guarantee the ogres or the trolls or, yeah, or whatever it is. You've got a team bonehead coming yeah. into play. Yeah, that's right. You can't guarantee they're going to do what you want them to do. Uh, that concept is, is friction, and it added some of that friction because the battlefield wasn't static anymore. The battlefield was you know, menacing you, and you mm. had to respond to both what the battlefield was doing as well as what James was doing with his custodians.
0: And just once you've played with it once or twice you start to see the potential for using it in other situations like using it in uh, cities of death you know it could be really interesting let's say if you use a method where you don't move terrain when it gets engulfed and instead yeah. you've got people fighting on the first floors of buildings because they can no longer get down to the ground floor yeah. you know there's lots of fun ways to make use of it yeah absolutely so you say you played a second game as well, and uh, I did. In the, the following note, week, in the show notes here, it says you may or may not have used the battle zone and I don't know yet whether you did. Uh,
1: we did indeed. Uh, we um, we chose to use Field of Nightmares, which is, I think, one
0: that you <laughs> yeah, the uh, like basically the warproof one. I had a lot of fun with that one in my yeah, uh, one of my more recent games.
1: Uh, the reason we we chose it is I had arranged uh, this uh, game with my friend Garth. Who, play quite a lot of games with um different lot of different games with but in this case he bought his Green knights although i had to lend him my nemesis dread knight so that he got enough to feel two <laughs> 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 which was was always a, a nervous start to a battle when you're facing two nemesis dread knights one of them um, being your own one of them being my own indeed um uh but that's not all he bought he bought crow uh, and lord waldus um he bought terminators of course uh one of the Dreadnights was a Grandmaster Dread Knight, and he also had a Dreadnought. Had three squads of Paladins, uh, three strike squads, uh, and a Purgation Purgation Purgatory Purgatory squad. Purgage, yeah, I think it's a Purgation yeah. squad. Yeah, and uh, and a Dread as well. So um, the um, it, it was it was a much more higher model count uh, than than facing the Custodians. I brought a very similar force. Uh, except that because I knew we were going to use Field and Nightmares. If I'd put Psychers in, I felt that would be unfair, uh, given that all the effects would affect him negatively and not me so much. <laughs> um, although that's not entirely true, uh, as, as it played out, but um, I, I felt it wouldn't be fair to go against him uh, with uh, without Psychers in my force. So I dropped a couple of the tactical squads uh, and put in a, a primary Psycher, and one of my old uh, Rainbow Warrior Sykers, Um in 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 the old marine formats the, the normal marine format um and again one of the old metal models just like the chaplain i'm playing to the moment for for comes fists but uh, one of the old metal models of librarians with a scroll in his hand and a, waving a sword around so i quite like that model he's got a wonderful skull on his shoulder pad anyway back to the game <laughs> we chose to use the the data recovery mission from uh, uh crucible war mission from vigilus uh, and really we. Ch- we chose to use that one because we couldn't really see a good fluffy reason why Grey Knights would be fighting renegade space marines. In essence, Grey Knights are not so
0: interested normally in that kind of thing, right?
1: Um, but not we chose the been, you know
0: generating sort of demonic incursions. But yeah, like you say the renegades, you're not heavily invested in your chaos allegiance right. yet.
1: So so it was more of a we, we played it more of as capture the flag types now. So that for those that don't know, the data recovery mission, you get random objectives appearing um, in the, the middle of the board, at, at random locations. So there's a grid of nine different locations that's, 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 that's determined each turn by a, a, a D3, uh, two D3s uh, to, to give you X and Y coordinates or where they actually appear on the tabletop. So you sort of have to, you have to force yourself to be generic and adaptive while still fighting your opponent. Uh, to try and prevent them getting in position but in addition you only start with a third of your force on the board so the, there was something else that we did here, different here because we were both a little bit pressed for time in the week we'd, we'd arranged the game, we'd not really got our army list sorted, so so we took a big bold step and did something we've never done before, uh, either of us and we used parallel instead of points Oh,
0: okay see. I've never um, really played a parallel yet myself but yeah. um, we, you know, I'm open to giving it a try
1: well, we, we thought, well, it, it doesn't matter. It's a friendly game, right? And if it all goes wrong, we'll we'll have learned that. And um, then Garth popped up. So we were playing on a Friday afternoon, a Friday evening, and Garth popped up Friday afternoon and said, I finally got a power level list together about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I get 108 yeah. power level, which is... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's somewhere around 2,000 points plus or minus, which is a little bit bigger than the games we can normally fit in on, on a club night. But, the, well, we'll give it a go. That's what he's got. And I, I just got my boxes and boxes of space frames with me, so I didn't have a problem uh, to quickly finding 108. But it meant we didn't have to worry about fleshing out all the details of exactly what was, you know, what they were equipped with and all that kind of stuff, and adding up all the points like we normally do when we make lists. The power level stuff, you, if the options there, you can take it in the power level, right?
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so, so that made it a little bit simpler. And actually, it was, it was a balanced game. Uh, it, it, it didn't feel unbalanced for that. Uh, the fact that we'd not done the de- the detailed lists, it, it did come together quite nicely, really. Um, so, so I think I would definitely, having done it once, I would definitely use power level to draw a list again against against another opponent, see how it works. A very positive first experience. That. Well, that's
2: good
1: at least. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, it might be something a lot of people have not done, so I'd, I'd recommend giving it a go with with a friendly and positive opponent if if you've not done it uh, to, to to give it a chance, see how it works for you. Um, but but onto the battle itself. So we set up now. Which way do we go on this one? So this one's got a slightly different setup. You sort of set up in, in the corner of the board. Uh, and we got quite a number of different buildings and things uh, scattered over the board uh, with some open spaces in between them, but, but not too many. Enough closed down fire lanes, no, no big big open areas. Um, and it, you start with a third of your force on the board. So I put down... Uh, I think I just got one tactical squad with uh, a last cannon in it. I got one... Scout squad with a heavy bolter in it. Uh, I and both my librarians. So I've got a primary librarian and a, and a regular librarian, uh, and he'd started off with with one of his um, um, strike squads, uh, the Dreadnought and the Grandmaster. Uh, sorry, the Valdas. Um, uh, Valdas, uh, yeah, yeah. Some psych, to provide some psychic support and really. What he was starting to do is, is use the psychic stuff to um, provide the indirect fire options on the dreadnought. Um, to, oh, the uh, astral the... lane? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Which, was, which was quite a tactically sound thing because what he wanted to do is just keep me off guard so that he could then jump in and collect the objective as they start to appear. But the first objective doesn't appear until the end of turn two in that mission. Um, so so I move forward and, and manned. Not a bastion, but it was a bit like a bastion, really. I deployed the scouts on top of it, and I, I put the tactical marines around it. That left me very close to four of the nine potential drop objective points that could come in, uh, which was which was good. And um, and then prepared to see what he did. But our first round of shooting, we, well, we for the field of nightmares, the first first item that we rolled there was the option that made the shooting more dangerous so in essence any unit that has um taken uh, wounds in the shooting phase ends up taking an additional um d3 mortal wounds
0: yeah so basically if anything suffers wounds in the shooting phase at the end of the phase that unit then gets smited (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah Uh,
1: which allowed me to take out his strike squad um In short order, because they, um yeah, with the hits from the last cannon, kind of took out one of the one of the marines. The bolters took out a whole load more. Um, the the heavy bolter um, did a bit of a mess, and then the um, the the D three mortal wounds just took the rest of the squad off the board. And we were a bit like, oh, that's a bit brutal. Uh But we all we knew we got two two thirds of the force ready to come in, and of course he'd got a lot of things that could come in on
0: deep. Shrine, yeah, like I guess uh, when you've just got your initial like, partial force on the table, then it's not too bad, you know. You're going to be a bit bad for it, but at least it's
1: in yeah, And that's exactly what Garth was thinking, you know, uh, we don't know where these objectives are going to appear, uh, but I, I can deep strike in and, and try and take control of some of those things that come in. Um, and and then they, so, you know, we had some back and forth, we got some troops coming in, um, and because you've got two table edges, effectively, because you start in the corner, um, so long as you've got two table edges to come in from, uh, so long as you're far enough away from from your opponent when you do that, um, it made for a lot more opportunities for where where you can actually bring people on, which is really useful for this kind of mission anyway. Of course, um, uh, but he ended up bringing some. If I started in the bottom left, shall we say, and he started in the top right, um, I ended up bringing some items, some some figures on from the uh, from 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 the right. Uh, where did I start? If I start at the bottom left, and he's starting at the top right, I brought a lot of stuff in from the left, sort of behind me, um, and then then into the middle of the field as well. And you you have to roll to see whether the units appear or not. You you just roll for each one each turn uh, on this
0: yeah, uh, data using, um, Yeah, using almost more classic uh, reserve rules. Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. And it's, it's it's either is available or it's not available, and um, so it it took until about turn four when. I think it's turn four when it becomes they do definitely appear anyway. Before before everything appeared on the table, um, but I, I it meant I got my my thunder armor smash captain uh, in the backfield behind my force. Um, I got a lot of his uh, his dread knight teleported in quite close, his first dread knight, not his grandmaster dread knight, um, uh, to try and to try and take me off. Uh, the, the position I'd, I'd taken. Uh, but he was shot up quite badly in short order. The last cannon made real good work. <laughs> <laughs> Taking down half his wounds in one shot by rolling that six there. Oh, I didn't roll a six. I rolled a one and then command pointed it, which then became a six. <laughs> which was uh, one of the best uses of command points I've, I've had recently. Um, and then, then the heavy bolters and, and other weapons. And I think, if I remember correctly, the the net was finished off by a, a, a bolt pistol from artist librarian, which uh, just uh, happened uh, to make its way through, which is one of the things I like about Eighth, is um, you know he's battered, he's obviously been shot by a cannon, he's all, he's you know his armor's starting to wear down, he's got that one wound left, and he's just executed by that enemy who's, who's got a bolt pistol in a real accurate aim.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm so, quite a sucker for the uh, relic pistols. Like various armies yeah. have them. Um... There's been once or twice when I've had a uh, guard commander has used his um, like damage two ball pistol and he's killed like a tau crisis suit in like one shot and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah. uh, it's a it's a great feeling.
1: Yeah, I didn't take a special pistol. I I actually for the chapter earlier I took an armor and on um, on the regular Librarian uh, because he was um, I was worried about his survivability. Um, and in fact, that dread knight did take him out in short order. When he when he came in with his shooting, um, he he just stripped stripped the wounds off that, despite the entire indomitus, um, and he was gone. He was gone in short order. But the Primaris Librarian lasted a lot longer. But we didn't have such such variety on the the, the field of nightmares. But it, it did affect the way we thought about psychic powers. Perhaps, uh,
0: sorry, were you were either of you using the mission stratagems to try and manipulate it?
1: We did once, we did once. Uh, we we did the plus one, minus one thing. Um, uh, we did it in the same turn and the way it works is it actually you, you change it in your turn. So it meant we had one particular value uh, on my turn, because I'd, I'd started um, and then he used it at the start of his turn to change it to something more more effective for what he wanted to do. So I think I had it on finding the way in again, which is the one that causes the shooting wounds. Um and no, it's the other way around. Uh I'd had haunting the witches, which is the um you roll well, any double gives spells of the warp. Um and I'd chosen yeah. not to activate any yeah, yeah I'd chosen not to activate any psychic nice. powers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I thought that would be good. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to change that. But then at the start of his turn he used the command point to change it to, to the one that suffers D three mortal wounds to shooting. Um which was which was quite a nice uh, way of making that work.
0: So, yeah, so you were playing. But... So you're saying you were playing with one Psyker. You using a primary. By this point, I, uh, okay, I was so playing with two. So you but, were playing with two. One died quick. Yeah. <laughs> so effectively, you were playing with two psychers and you're playing against yeah. green knights, and yeah. you're using the battle zone that has a range of both bonuses and perils yeah. for Psykers. Yeah. How nice. did you feel that balanced out? You know, an army of psychers versus an army led by some
1: psychers. It made us both more cautious about using psychic powers. Again, it added that same friction that, that that I talked about in the last battle, where it made us we weren't guaranteed to get what we wanted out of Psychic Powers. Quite often when you, when you play or play against Death, Drake, Grey Knights, it's sort of just like you, you just can't stop everything. You certainly can't deny everything. And it gets to the point where he's almost auto-rolling and it. It's whether whether his actual rolls actually make it through to, to get the power off or not. Yeah. Um, whereas this time, especially when, when things like, like that, that that result came up, it made us, I'm, both him and myself, much more cautious about, do I actually want to bother with Smite? I mean, there is somebody in range, but if I roll any double, <laughs>
0: um, I'm I'm going to perils. You, I, did, you sure didn't really want feel that. that the battle zone affected one player or the other too much or too little. It did actually feel no. like it had a relatively no. even influence.
1: From the way I've described the setup, you would think, oh, that's 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 really bad for the grey knights. Uh, but actually, it 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 didn't always pan out that way. Because, for example, the shooting one I've just described, it just happens in the shooting phase. There's just there's just more warp energy around, so more war, wounds are caused. Uh, they, we had the similar one, the fight phase, that uh, came up a couple of times where uh, at the end of each player's fight phase, if each unit's within one inch of an enemy unit, that unit suffers one mortal wound. And that had an effect on the game as well. So although uh, the, the, the narrative part of that battle zone is that the, you know, the warp is a bit thinner, um, and, and and that was the reason these uh, the Grey Knights wanted the um the objectives and that's why my psychic led force wanted the objectives that's the narrative we built up um and and the battle zone is is primarily a, a you know a psychic influence sort of um, uh, battle zone actually a lot of the uh, the results on that d6 there's only one or two that actually affect psykers directly
0: yeah it, it's more the fact that um, psychers are capable of influencing the yep. the environment a bit more
1: that's right so i think I think at the start of the battle you need to you can only really use it if you've both got psychers in in your force uh, to be able to influence it a little bit uh, but the actual the actual battle zone itself uh, takes effect across a variety of different phases that that anybody can make use of uh, yeah, it wasn't, but... it didn't feel
0: unbalanced good um so, what was the the outcome of the game ultimately?
1: The overall outcome. So yeah, we 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 got into some some quite heavy fisticuffs one way or another. Um, the Thunderhail the, 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 captain did some some real good work, uh, breaking people apart. <laughs> the uh, I never really got to grips with his his dreadnought, uh, but I, I had a couple of um, two squads, two normal tactical squads backed up by a Primaris Lieutenant made an uh, an awful lot of mess towards his backfield um uh, taking out um taking out a couple of his um purgation squads and um uh, made a little bit of mess of, of one squad of terminators as well um so but the 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 way the objectives came in i the first one came in right next to where i'd uh castled up um in that corner and it was like it was one of those oh well i've got that objective then because it you know you would really have needed to really push me off to get that one yeah. um, and th- then the next two that came in uh, came into right in the center of the board uh, and that's where the battles were fought over uh, i brought in my uh, assault marines uh, on top of that um, but they they were kind of uh, swept off that by uh, by these grandmaster Um, Dread Knight and and at the end we had to call it one turn early because we got to the end of the time at the club uh, because we'd taken (laughs) 108 power level was a little bit too much it turned (laughs) out Uh, but I think he'd he'd already got the balance of the game anyway uh, and it was a fair result so he got two objectives and I got one so um, but it it did come down again to that last turn of dice uh, really balanced game but fun and narrative at the same time lots of story to take out of it um and you know, again, chatting in the car park about how it gone, how we felt about it, and we and we definitely enjoyed it. And that, that field of nightmares, we did think, oh, this is going to be heavy on the psychers but actually, it wasn't heavy on the psychers It just made different things in different turns happen each time, and uh, yeah. it was really quite fun. i'm more likely to use field of nightmares again than more often than uh, than than the geothermal eruption, I think, uh, oh, because it, it, it was a little bit more. it had he had more different effects. Uh, on the turn sequence.
0: Oh yeah, like the, the geothermal eruption is very much this is the fancy thing that's happening for this game. You yeah. Know, it, it will keep encroaching, it will keep forcing your hand but it's the same thing for the game.
1: Yeah, it, it was more like there's a steady thing happening whereas the yeah. field of nightmares was there's something
0: random changing different every time and every turn you have to adapt to it. So how would you say you're enjoying using battlefields then in like your games?
1: So despite the fact I've just described two losses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I really enjoyed them. They were both like down to the you know, the very last turn sort of games, um, with with kind of balanced armies. Uh using the using front mainline troopers and, and just a couple of small specialist characters. Um I, I really enjoyed that. I, I kinda like the the slogging type army. Um I mean vehicles are fun don't get me wrong I, I enjoy using vehicles sometimes as well but i do like building building an army out of flux augus so it, it worked for me i was playing the kind of games i enjoyed with the kind of figures i enjoyed against great opponents so i know know quite well uh, from the club which which always makes it better of course and um, we, we set out with the objective of having uh, fun games with a bit of story behind them and just just seeing how these things like battle zones worked and um, yeah.
0: And we, we really enjoyed it. It worked really well. Great. It's glad to hear that, you know, other people are trying battle zones out for the first time and just you know, seeing how they influence a game but they don't like force the game to feel too no, different. You know, it it just adds a nice little extra bit to it. Yeah. Um and I, I would certainly love to hear from anyone who has tried any battle zones themselves in their games. So, you know, definitely um Drop, you know, drop a message in the Facebook group, give us some examples, or if you want, you can, you can always contact the show directly at uh, narrativewargamer at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear about some of the uh, games that you've been playing. Um, but I by no means advocate using Battlefields in every single game of 40k that you play. I just think they're another wonderful tool in your toolbox to sort of play more interesting and narrative games. Um, and I think we'll move on now to our spotlight topic which is another one of these very useful tools for really enhancing um, your games in the future and that is the open war cats workshop so we'll take a quick break there and then we'll come back and discuss some open war do you enjoy awesome narrative 40k games as much as we do do you wish there was more narrative play content online you could enjoy narrative wargamer aims to be more than just a podcast our goal is to become a wider platform for Narrative 40k content creation. Right now we are just starting out, but you can already find 40k articles and gaming posts on our website at narrativewargamer.wordpress.com We also aim to develop the Narrative Wargamer YouTube channel narrative battle reports custom missions expanded gameplay rules and much more if you would like to see awesome content like this then please support the show via the narrative wargamer patreon page the support from our patrons helps us produce the show and expand our range of future content you can support the show from as little as two dollars a month and it really is the best way to show us you are enjoying our work and are excited to see more with your support narrative wargamer can become the number one provider of narrative clear content from the grim down Right, we're back guys, and now we're going to be talking about our spotlight topic tonight, which is the Open War Cards. So, um, as I've mentioned before, we all know there are, you know, effectively three ways to play the game, match, narrative, and open. Um, But I don't think that they're so stringently separated, do you know what I mean? Like, I do think there's lots of room for sort of crossing things over. Like, you know, I typically play with match play points, but I tend to play, like, more narrative-based missions and gameplay. And uh, the open war cards are another way of playing the game. And as the name would suggest, they're kind of intended for open war play, which is more the sort of like anything goes version of 40K. Just throw some models on the table, roll some dice, have some fun. But I do think there's... um, room to use these as a very uh helpful tool in creating narrative games as well so i think it's just really worth talking about because i also think not many people even realize they exist or have tried using them and i think more people should
1: yeah absolutely i mean i've got a set of the open war cards i've used them once or twice when Eighth came out but i, I can't say i've used them very much since and uh, i certainly haven't brought them with me to india so hopefully we have got <laughs> them, uh,
0: there that we could go through with yeah, so I've got my pack of Open War Cards here. So when you, you can buy the Open War Cards from the Games Workshop um, web store. Um, don't think you'll see them on shelves in stores very often, but uh, you never know. You might There might be some old supply store on shelves somewhere, but you can still order them online and they're great. So it's basically a, a, ca- a, a pack of cards, a bit like the tactics cards that you get for your rallies. Um And in it, it can contains a few different decks of cards. So it includes a deck of deployment cards, a deck of objective cards, a deck of twists, a deck of ruses, and a sudden death deck. Now, all of these do a few different things and basically the idea is that you draw like one of these cards from each of these decks to generate the parameters of the mission that you're going to play. So, it comes with a little instruction booklet that tells you how you're supposed to generate a mission so I'll just have a quick read through this now. Um, so you shuffle each of the decks of cards, you draw the top card from each of the deployment, objective and twist decks, and place them face-up so both players can see them. Place the ruses and the sudden death cards uh, to one side for the moment, they may be needed after two armies have set up. Uh, so, you typically create your battlefield and terrain set up however you want, and then you move to deployment. So. Both so you, were... tend to, you, you choose your armies and you set up your
1: battlefield before you actually draw from the
0: open war. Card. Draw your mission, yeah. So uh, yeah. this would typically in most, like, say, militiam or other war missions, it would be the kind of step that you would je- place the six bar- objective markers. You, know, you would okay. be- make your armies, make your battlefield, then you would place objectives. And this, this is when you generate the mission. Now, it's worth saying that the open war cards are intended... So not intended, but um, they allow you to play unbalanced games, so games where one player has more points value than the other, Okay. which is something that you don't see very often. And I don't think it's something that many people play. I would be interested to hear if anyone out there has ever played um, games where one side is larger than the other or more points than the other or whatever, but that's what things like the ruse cards and the sudden death cards are intended for. Um, now, personally, I still do prefer to play what you would consider balanced points value games, so the majority of games, so you can sort of pick and choose some of these cards and what you want to use and don't use, so I very rarely use the Summon Death cards, but I'll just iterate through all these for now. So when you come to your deployment, both players roll a dice, rolling again in the case of a tie. The player that rolls highest chooses uh, which of the territories shown on the deployment card will be their deployment soon. so You've randomly your deployment and you pick their side. Their opponent uses the other deployment zone. Uh, the players then alternate setting up units, blah, blah, blah. That's sort of throwback to the start of 8th edition. But again, to be honest, you can use whatever deployment method you prefer. I personally quite prefer the, um, the latest chapter approved iterations where one player deploys your entire army, then the other deploys your entire army. Um, and whoever deployed first goes first, unless you sees Ruses and Sudden Death Victories. So, after both sides have finished setting up, each player must add up uh, the power rating of all their units in their army. If one army has a total is greater than the other, the player with the lower total is allowed to take the top card from the Ruse deck. If one army has a total is at least double the other, uh, the player with the lower total takes the top card from the Sudden Death deck as well. Uh, ruse of sudden death cards are kept secret until they are played. If a sudden death card can be played, its victory conditions override those found on the objective cards for the game. Um, and then victory the player that achieves the victory conditions on the objective card chosen from the, fall the battle wins a glorious victory. If a sudden death card is played during the battle, the player wins a major victory. If neither player achieves the victory conditions on the objective card and no sudden death card was played, then the player whose army has the lower total power rating wins a minor victory. Both armies have the same properties in the game as a job. So, the long and short of that is basically uh, you use these deck of cards to generate a random deployment map, a random mission for the game, and a twist that's going to be affecting the gameplay. Then, right. optionally, you can include either ruse cards or suddenly left cards, depending on however you fancy doing it. Me personally, I quite like giving both players one ruse card, regardless of if the points are the same or not. Um, I don't typically use the sudden death cards. I think I'd only use those if you were playing like um say a last stand mission. So say you were playing with yeah. like, a thousand points of marines versus two thousand points of orcs. You know, you could play that really cinematic, outnumbered, we're gonna, you know, fight to the last mission. The Battle of Orcsmith.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> like you could do that, but the Marine player would have a sudden death card, which gives them yeah. like a hidden victory condition, condition. Yeah. so even though inevitably we know you're going to be wiped out you might have succeeded in you know, uploading the uh, valuable data to the command bar you may have succeeded in uh, providing the Orbital Bombardment Coordinates, you might have held out long enough for the Imperial forces to arrive and leave the planet even though your forces are going to die defending it Till then, you know, whatever yeah. the grand scale of things the greater picture has been a victory to you even though you might have died
1: <laughs> So, i think i understand the, the sudden death conditions but what kind of things do the ruse cards bring
0: so the ruse cards um they bring sort of like a small advantage well not necessarily small but they bring like often a one-time advantage so i'll just give you a few for example here so this ruse card is called revenge play this card if your warlord is slain for the rest of the battle, you can add one to the wound rolls made for all the models in your army. Okay. Um, there's another one called Tactical Reserves, uh, which is actually what my friend played against me uh, when he was using his death card. Play this card at the end of any of your movement phases. Pick one unit from your army that has been destroyed. You can set that unit up again more than nine inches from the enemy, and so the unit is holding within in nine inches of the battlefield edge. So you get to recycle a unit. For free, yeah um so he actually brought back a, uh, a hell brute that had destroyed at the okay. start of uh, the game. um so he played with effectively an extra hell brute, but it didn't it didn't massively swing the game because you know technically he was playing like a hundred and fifty points up on me or whatever yeah. because he got this tactical reserve dreadnought that sort of like came in and helped out when he needed to it, it it did help plug a hole in his defense but it also didn't suddenly create an unachievable uphill challenge for me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that, that was a lot of fun. Um, you've got one like uh, Inspiring Speech, play this card after deployment is complete, but before the first battle round. As long as your warlord is on the battlefield, your units automatically pass morale tests. Okay, that makes sense then. So they, they're, they're buffs, but they're not like major game changing buffs. Yeah. That's exactly what they have, they're a small little advantage. Um, whereas, Twist decks, so these are the cards which are going to be in play for the game, and they affect the entire game. These are a little more... Um, not swingy, but they have a bit more of an, a, a longer lasting effect. So, for example, uh, Acid Rain. Subtract one from all hit rolls made for shooting attacks, and subtract one from all advanced and charge rolls raw dice at the start of each battle round after the first. On a 4+, plus, the rain stops, if it was raining, or the rain starts again, if it wasn't. Okay. Um, orbital Debris. Each player rolls three dice at the start of their turn. For each roll of a six, they may pick a separate enemy unit and inflict D3 mortal Wounds upon it. Um, and then things like Eager for the Fight add two inches to the move characteristics of all models and add one to all advance in charge rolls. So they're more like overarching, um, like rules that affect that game and like affect yeah. everyone equally.
1: Yeah. So that, that, that increased move characteristic affects both armies, for example. affects
0: both players, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the actual objectives deck. So Unlike most Eternal War or Maelstrom missions, unless the objective card specifies, you won't necessarily play with objective markers. So some of them um, don't inherently require objective markers, like um, the other month I played Kill the Courier, where at at the start of the first battle round, before determining who has the first turn, each player lets their opponent know which model in their army is their courier. The model cannot be the army's warlord, and must already be set up on the battlefield. The first player to slay the opponent's courier wins the battle. Right. Uh, that's the one that you used in your last game you described last episode, right? Yes. So, like, you know, that's an objective that doesn't require objective markers or anything similar. It's mm-hmm. just there's a thing to do, and if you do it, you win. Yes. Um, so, but there are ones with objective markers such as take and hold. Place one objective marker at the center of the battlefield. Each player, each of the players then sets up one objective marker in their deployment zone more than 12 inches from any battlefield edge. At the end of each player's turn, they score one victory point for each objective marker they control. If the objective marker was also controlled by by the player at the end of their last turn, they score three victory points instead. The player with the most victory points at the end of the fifth battle round is the winner. So that's one where you'll get one victory point at the end of the turn for seizing an objective. But if it's an objective marker that you held since the start of the battle round, you actually get three victory points. So you're actually incentivized to hold on to the ones you've got rather than just speeding around trying to tag whatever the latest, you, you know, nearest objective is. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, it adds a different uh, flavor
0: to what you're going to try and yeah. Different choices to how you can actually play the battle. um We've got ones like Burn and Village. The players roll off, starting with a winner. They then take it in turns to set up three objective markers each, anywhere in their own deployment zone that is more than six inches from any other objective marker and any battlefield edge. So that's one where you're going to have three objectives each, but all three of them are within your objective, uh, your deployment zone. So you've got very much like these are our objectives that our army's holding. A player can burn and pillage any enemy objective markers that they control at the end of their turn. Remove them when they do so. The first player to burn and pillage all three enemy objective markers wins the battle. So, like in that one, holding your own objectives doesn't actually provide you with any kind of win condition. It's just stopping the opponent from achieving theirs. Yeah. Because what you need to be doing is going and burning down their objective markers in their deployment zone. Yeah,
1: objective markers made out of uh, delicate
0: Ming vases or uh, bakable artifacts. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like that. I think that would be a fun one to try. I've not played that one before, but I think it'd be really interesting. Um, and then you've got the deployment deck. So, you know, everyone's sort of seen what a 40k deployment map looks like, but these have some very abstract versions so for example one of them is um, Lengthway's deployment but there's no no man's land like the entire okay. deployment zone is your half of the table and the opponent's half of the table <laughs> and realistically there's nothing stating that you couldn't start you know anywhere so long as you're an inch away from the enemy you know maybe a way of ruling it will be you couldn't be within nine inches of another opponent's model, uh, another opponent's unit. If you're going to do that, I'd suggest using alternate setup for units rather than yeah, the
1: I think that would definitely make me go back and look, look at the
0: basic rules. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for, for... Uh, it's it's worth emphasising that this is a toolkit. That's the point. It's a useful thing to use. Yeah, yeah. So you do want to tweak things, adjust things, and account for you know things that were maybe throw a game one way or the other. But it's certainly really helpful
1: there's um there's a yeah i guess i guess everyone i, I was going to say i guess that, uh, what it's going to come back to is that uh, situations like that where you could then spend up spending 20 minutes searching through the different rule books about how close you can actually set up when you did deployment zones so close together which is not a normal situation that arises, are probably better resolved just by discussion with your opponent and agree what you're going to do in the game yeah right? just, just to say about Defining a mission dynamically, and if if you uh, with your opponent want to tweak that so it's not even quite what the mission card say, then then that's okay, right? Because it's your
0: game. Yeah, do what you want with it. You know, yeah. it's easy enough just to say, you know, oh, well, why don't we do alternate unit setup? But when you set up the unit, it can't be in nine inches of an enemy unit. That way, you yeah. still get to play around with the the really close deployment zones, like no no man's land. But at the same time, it's not just going to be both players start two inches away in smash face. <laughs> yeah. you know? Like there's things you can do. But then again you might be playing with one army that say doesn't want to start on the line and actually wants to start in their corners. They can do that. And then their opponent could start on the line and actually when you look at the board, that's more a sort of like corners versus centre line deployment. You know, yeah. which could be interesting. Yeah we we can see that in Blood Angels versus Tau, can't we?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: But there's some other interesting ones, like um, there's a there's a deployment zone where one player has a 12-inch a radius of a deployment from the centre of the board, so they've effectively got like a 24-inch um, diameter circle in the middle, and the other player gets all four corners cut diagonally. Yeah. So, you know, That creates a tense standoff mission. And say you were playing um, the three objective markers each, Burn and Pillage, like, player A would have all three of their markers in the center, this circular deployment zone, right in the middle of the board, and player B would have, like, probably an objective marker in three of the four corners. And that would make for a really interesting dynamic, you know. How does player A defend their clutch of objectives in the center while also getting to the corners to destroy the enemy ones?
1: Yeah, it sounds very much like one of the, the missions in um,
0: uh, Vigilous Ablaze. Uh,
1: for, uh, from an unexpected quarter? Uh, yes. Where you've got a 12-inch deployment right. zone in the middle. Uh, but actually, um, the the attacker, I think, is not limited to the four deployment zones in the corners mm-hmm. you just described there. I think he just comes in uh,
0: from from different places, right? Yes, whereas this one you actually are deployed on the table, in field. Yeah. Um, so then, like, there's one that I really like. Where it's going to be a little difficult to describe accurately, you know, on the podcast. But I'll give it a go. So, if you've got your standard six x four table, player A has a short table edge. So imagine, so like, twelve inches in from one of the short table edges. Player B has almost a a sort of like a rectangle of deployment starting on the opposite short table edge and coming to about halfway into the board, but they don't have the full short table edge. So basically you've got about um so like 24 40, yeah so you've got about 24 inches of deployment zone, but it's centered on the short table edge so you've so the very uh, the very ends of it, and not your deployment zone. So it doesn't border up with any of the long table edges. So you see the two deployment zones make a T shape, but with a gap between the two lines. Yes, because um, player B's deployment zone extends basically to like the middle of the board. And then you end up with like an 18 inch gap between the tip of their deployment zone and the other player's short table edge. Now, the effect that has when you're actually deployed is it looks a bit like uh, player B's got a garrison like they have an area of the board where their forces are set up but they're not just in like a line on the table edge somewhere advancing towards the enemy, they look like they've been stationed somewhere and player A yeah. is the one who's invading that station, you know they're invading from one flank and attacking it. so yeah, I've played that one before and I think that one actually creates a very uh, unique situation and dynamic and it's a lot of fun um So what I thought would be a good idea, just to give you a sense of how these cards can play out and, like we mentioned, how you might have to tweak them just a little bit to bring them into line with, you know, a traditional, say, pointed game or, you know, narrative game or whatever. I thought it'd be fun to actually generate a few on the fly and just talk about the kind of mission it provides us. Okay. That
1: sounds like a good thing to do. Maybe we can take... uh... Comments from anybody that wants to comment who's listening to this on, on the Facebook page or, or by email the addresses Tony's talked about before and
0: see see if your opinions are different from ours. Yeah. Um, so you're probably just having shuffling the deck stairs. So for example, first mission. Our deployment map is ooh, okay, so deployment is table quarters, but with a twelve uh, but with like a a six inch uh, gap from the centre. So you, you've got like um, a little cut off circle on the edge of your corner so there is yes. a, a 12 inch gap between the tips of the two corners um our mission is drawn and quartered uh, the players are all off starting with the winner they take turns to set up two objective markers each anywhere more than 12 inches from the center of the battlefield so outside that little bubble <laughs> um, and more than six inches from any battlefield edge and more than 18 from any other objective markers because you're only setting up two markers each so all. at the end of their turn a the player scores one victory point for every objective marker they control the player with the most victory points at the end of the fifth battle round is the winner so at the moment we've got a pretty standard game of 40k more or less you've got table quarters and pretty much an objective in each table quarter
1: do those, oh, those objects the objective site? do those objectives have to be within
0: your deployment zone, or can they be anywhere? No, they can be anywhere, but because they have to be more than 12 from the centre, more than 6 from an edge, and more than 18 inches from another objective marker, they're going to sort of naturally sift themselves into more or less being a a table quarter each. Yeah, because you could just about squeeze them both into your deployment zone, but um, they'd they'd be at either end to meet those rules. So that's an example of a relatively standard-ish deployment and objectives but then we add our twist which is battle frenzy add one to the attack characteristics of all models in this battle so you know melee oriented forces gonna have fun there Uh, and then i would for example draw a pair of ruses for each player. so player a uh, and these would be hidden from each other obviously they would have outflank. Uh, play this card after deployment is complete but before the best battle round pick one of your units and remove it from the battlefield. You must set it up again at the end of either your first or second movement phase, more than nine inches from the enemy, and so that unit is holding nine inches of the battlefield edge. Now that's interesting when you're playing um, a mission with objective markers in each corner. Yeah. yeah. So you get to outflank with a unit, which you would not have expected, and it could be anything. You could outflank with your Gorkonaut. You could outflank with your, I don't know, um, Leemon russ you know, anything fancy, uh, whereas their opponent uh, has the ruse ambush, play this card after deployment is complete but before the first battle round. Pick up to three of your units to be set up in ambush. You can set the unit up again anywhere that is not in your opponent's deployment zone and is more than 12 inches from any enemy models. So suddenly you've got a, a pretty standard table quarters quartered objectives then both players are now redeploying units. One of them is actually infiltrating three units and one of them is outflanking a unit. So you're going to end up with a mission now where player B has probably more of the board covered at deployment and they're going to be sort of like claiming some of the objectives early on. But player A has got an outflanking unit that they can have just roll up. And it could be quite a... You know, influential units, as it can be anything that's going to suddenly yes. appear and probably attempt to ransack one of those table quarters and maybe even catch some of those infiltrated units out by themselves.
1: Yeah, I mean, both of those losers become immediately apparent actually because they they, they played at the start of the battle, so um, you you become aware of what they are, um, which which is maybe not what you always get with the losers, but the. Um, you, you're immediately thinking, if you've drawn out flank, that, okay, I'm going to look at getting one of my objectives there, uh, one of my opponent's objectives there, or to make a mess in his back, uh, back quarters where, wherever you can. But as soon as you learn that he's got then three ambushed, uh, infiltrated ambushers there, you might be thinking, oh, I might need to bring that on as a reserve to defend
0: my own objectives, We're going to have to see how this plays out, right? And then additionally, everyone in this game has got possible attack. So, infiltrating your units means they're going to Probably be more prone to being assaulted by the enemy, so Which you know more risk you, reward. Yeah, that when you're choosing an outflanking unit, you,
1: you know, I mean, you always think that you might go for something assaulty uh,
0: on outflank, but it really does confirm that with the. Uh, oh, yeah. you, if you suddenly have um, an outflanking unit of calm berserkers in this game, yeah, they're just going to appear in one table quad and they are going to absolutely tear apart anything they touch. They've got plus one attack that's as right. well, so...
1: Plus one attack. Plus the plus one attack they get from the chainswords, plus the, um, you know, their normal attack characteristics. So, yeah, they become... Uh,
0: yeah, that's that's almost all levels of dice, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just off the fly there, you've generated, you know, a nice game of 40k, table quarters, quarter objectives, but suddenly ambushes and outflanking are happening. Everyone's rearing for a fight. And it's not going to completely you know, change the face of a game, but yeah. uh, it is going to add an extra layer to it. So I
1: think that was a, well, a, or even Another unit that you might choose to outflank there would be a big mob unit. So you've got a mob of 30 boys that then yeah. pops up very close with plus one attacks on all of them.
0: Um, there, They're going to make a mess of your opponent, whoever your opponent is, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, So I think that was a good first example. So let's try generating a second one. So, oops, so deployment is the T-shaped one that I was just talking about. So the uh, player A is short table edge, player B has sort of like a a center of the board extending from the opposite short table edge deployment. The mission (laughs) uh, is burn and pillage. So the three objective markers each. So and the aim is to destroy your opponent's ones while defending your own. The gameplay twist is orbital debris. Each player rolls three dice at the start of their turn. For each roll of six, they pick a separate enemy unit and inflict deeply more wounds upon it. And player A's ruse is revenge. Play this card if your wallet is slain for the rest of the L, add one to wound rolls for your bottles in your army. And player B's ruse is tactical reserves. So play this at the end of any move phases, pick a unit that was destroyed, you can set it up again more than 9 inches from the enemy, and hold it in 9 inches from the table edge.
1: So was, was player A or player B, is that a choice around which zone they have on the map, or is that, um, is it specified
0: on the map which one's player A and which one's player B? It, it, it's not really important. A and B is just for the purposes of this example, so people can okay. you know, assign the information, but basically when you draw the deployment map and the players would roll off and the winner picks which deployments they only want
2: mm-hmm.
0: so either A or B which is specified on the cards you know deployment A is the short table edge deployment B is the more center table edge um, and then each player would individually draw their own ruse card and hide it until such time it's used yeah, yeah. Um, so that one you've got basically player B is defending their sort of like central the center board objectives whilst trying to reach out into the uh, enemy's deployment zone and destroy theirs. Um, whilst there's some sort of space battle going on overhead and all this orbital debris falling down so there's a chance of some uh, targeted smites afflicting, afflicting units, possibly the ones that are guarding objective markers. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the player A's warlord gets himself killed in a glorious charge deep into enemy territory. Um, then the rest of his army is going to feel like avenging him and gets that plus one to wound. But it, it does incentivize you a little to put your warlord in danger, right? A little bit. But then whatever you've torpedoed him into in order to destroy something, um, Player B has got tactical reserves. So oh, did your warlord gloriously charge in and destroy my redemptive dreadnought? And now we've gunned him down in response. Well, in my yeah. next turn, that, that Redemptor General is going to walk back on.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, suddenly, you know, okay, one player's got plus one to wound army wide, but the other player's now just suddenly got a free unit recycled. So, yeah. that could be quite interesting, especially when the tactical reserve can come on from any battlefield edge. That could be really helpful for them to get over to the objective that they need to try and burn and pillage. Yeah, I'm going to recycle this Bane Blade into your backfield. <laughs> 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 yeah, like stuff like that is the sort of thing where you need to decide whether or not it's going to be game breaking. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, that's, um,
1: I think. The, yeah, if the, if there are any big units, Lords of war things like that on the tabletop, maybe that's that's
0: that's a discussion to be had there, perhaps before you draw any of these cards. Right? Uh, possibly. I mean, in the case of the ruse cards, obviously you're keeping them hidden for the opponent, so you're using. Yeah, yeah. Them, so there's an argument for, well do i know what i am or aren't going to recycle in advance is it allowed but you know basically just be fair to your opponent with it you know don't you're playing with open war cards you're not going to be aiming to make the most powerful line of play every time you know, no, no, absolutely. And uh, the, the, it was
1: just the, the that struck me as something that may go down badly. right? <laughs> so so I think having discussions about what some of the effects of some of the cards can be, particularly when you've got big units like those, uh, may be a good thing to do in advance, even before you start drawing cards. So if the situations do come up, you've had a conversation about it before and you know what is or isn't okay. Because I, I know certainly regular clubmates who I play against, some of them would be totally fine about that
0: others would get a bit annoyed. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, I was totally fine with it when this Hellbrute came back on. Um, and it was funny, because when my opponent first drew that card at the start of the game, he did say, like, oh, this seems a bit powerful and a bit, you know, game-breaking. And I was like, ah, it's fine. I don't think it'll be a problem. Like, I know roughly what all these cards are. I don't foresee there being an issue. And I destroyed his, you know, Hellbrute, and he was like, I'm going to bring this Hellbrute back. And I was like, oh, cool, that's that's a cool use of that card. Yeah, that's fine by me. You know, I don't see you bringing back a Hellbrute as being... Um, ridiculous. I do remember saying that the one thing about it was I'd probably avoid bringing back any unique units, just like named characters. Or yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I, yeah. it didn't occur to me. about bringing him back, other like, other like, oh, you killed Magnus. Guess what? He's back. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, it's not meant to be him re like reincarnated, is it? It's meant to be another. It's supposed thing. to be another vis-earth. That's right. Yeah. So that's the only thing I'd probably avoid: special characters or named units. Really.
1: Yeah. Often, maybe Vulcan. Vulcan's supposed to come back, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, so let's let's generate one more, and then I think um, you get the gist of these things. So deployment is okay. So this was interesting. is short table edges, um, eighteen inches in from the short table edge is where you start uh, defining like an arrowhead de- to the deployment to the center of the board and oh, arrowheads yeah. actually touch so the tips of the arrowheads are actually right uh, next to each other so, there is, so it's like the normal triangular deployment thing but they, they come much closer together yeah they do actually come to a point So, yep. but there is like these uh, triangles of no man's land at the uh, top and bottom of the board as it were so it's not no no man's land but there is certainly a a center point that is right on top of each other. If you sort of chose to use it or make use of it, you're still going to be at least three or four inches apart because
1: you've got to wholly deploy within your deployment zone, so you Yes, be able to use the very
0: tips of those triangles. <laughs> you, you could have like some um, some infantry units literally deployed in a, a like a diamond formation, yep. um, and the very tips of those two units could be having a standoff, but that'd be about it. You know, you, you're not going to be entirely on top of each other. You, You've just got some meeting units. Uh, the objective is the prize. Place an objective marker at the centre of the battlefield. A model can pick <laughs> it up by ending a move on top of it. The marker moves uh, with that model from then on. Uh, the model can drop the marker at any time and must drop it if slain. If it is dropped by a player's model, their opponent places a marker who each of that model. And they've dropped it. The player whose model is carrying the marker at the end of the 5th battle round wins the game. So, immediately, that pairs very interestingly with that deployment zone because the marker is in the center of the board, but both players could deploy a key unit right in the center of the board and they're going to immediately be you know, having a scrum for it. But it's not like the entire battle line is at the center. You're going to have. <laughs> it's setting us up for a very meat grinder scenario, this, because both sides are going to be feeding more units into the center after that start of the initial turn. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that you'd want to do there is, is, as
1: well as Meat Grinder is you're going to want to try and outflank and get behind them so they can't get it off the board so
0: yeah. easily. Uh, and then the twist for this game is Dead of Night. The maximum range of all shooting attacks and psychic powers is limited to 12 inches. The okay. player who takes the first turn must roll a dice at the start of each battle round after the first. On a 4+, plus. Uh, 6 inches added to the maximum range of all shooting attacks and psychic powers. The second time 4 plus is made, 12 inches added, and the third time 18 and so on. So uh, it's going to start with, you know, 6 inch limited range, uh, 12 inch limited range, but every turn 4 plus chance it goes up to 18, then a chance it'll go up to 30, uh, 48, and then so on. So, yeah, you've got... (laughs) an important objective in the middle of the board that everyone's going to be fighting over and visibility is limited it does feel like sneaking in as a cat burglar in the middle of the night to steal the milk tray from the governor (laughs) and then finally the pair of bruises for both players, player A has inspiring speech, play this card after deployment is complete but preferred first round as long as your warlord is on the battlefield your units automatically pass morale tests and Player B has dug in. Uh, play this card after deployment is complete, but before the first battle round. Any of your units that are not in cover count as being in cover as long as they remain stationary. Okay, so that was slightly less effective with Dead of Night, isn't it?
1: But you, I guess it means that you might want to set your force up. You, do you find the voozers before you set your, your, your,
0: your forces uh, up, right? Uh... Yes, I believe you would draw your losers, um around deployment, but that gives you you, you, would, you would draw your cards after deployment, as strictly written by the open war directives. But I mean, yeah. I, when I played it before, I've drawn the rooses before deployment, so you can bear it in mind because I think it makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, because you might if you draw them before deployment,
0: you may want to choose a couple of units to. To be dug in two or three units like, in your backfield For field, me, you can fall back to once you've got you. Yes, yeah. You, know, you can you can set up a pair of units, say, on the edges of the da- uh, the uh, arrowhead deployment, with the yep. aim of being within twelve inches of the centre, so that they can they can open up fire on any enemy units that are trying to take the prize, and they can yep. act as a first line of defence for your forward unit to fall back to once they get the prize. Yeah. that's like, yes, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, exactly. So you know, there is definitely some interesting um, uses for those cards, and that immediately creates a um, a very unusual game of forty k. Now,
1: and if he's this... got space, speech as well, then you then your opponent is gonna is gonna be
0: harder to shoot him off the table anyway. Yeah, um, I think this might be one where depending on the armies that people have brought you might need to you know redraw the odd card or reshuffle something like for example if you're playing a game with two very shooty orientated armies no sorry if you're playing a game with say one very long range shooty army and another army that's a very close quarter choppy army there's an argument to be made that maybe dead of night is going to be too negative negative for one player more so than the other if that's the case yeah. and you both feel that's going to be the case just redraw the twist card like yeah. you could say right Dead of Night is going to be too, inf- too impactful we're happy playing the prize we're happy playing this deployment zone but let's swap that twist for <laughs> okay eager for the fight which is a questionable one but <laughs> add two inches to movement characteristics and add one to all advance and charge now arguably you know your gullum and gunline or your Tower castle isn't going to be as thrilled about getting plus two movement on their enemies units and advances and charges but suddenly now you are able to play a game at least where they are able to actually dig in and gun cool stuff down you know
1: who knows yeah
0: yeah Maybe but uh, i mean the
1: pies I, I i don't think it's if you are i mean i usually try and bring a narrative fluffy force but if you're trying to build a, a list that can deal with a multiple of scenarios actually building a castling tower gun line is not necessarily an optimum build anyway for for dealing with a number of scenarios where you don't know what's coming towards you um it it might work in in your pickup games, right? and it might work when you uh you play against regular opponents um but it it is it's fragile in in a particular way in in the way that um six started to fall down really Uh, sorry seventh edition started to fall down where you could, you could come with two random armies, uh, flyers and uh, knights, and you'd be sort of very difficult to fight each other um, in an in effective, if one way. And if you build a list that's, that's just a shooty Castle Tower army, you, you're not going to be able to succeed in these kind of missions, like the Prize. Any kind of long-range castling army that's got no other um, function of, of the way it can behave tactically. Uh, you, you're kind of limiting yourself to, to not being able to succeed in these kind of missions.
0: And it's worth mentioning that you don't even have to use all these cards in this way to generate a mission um, in their entirety. Like, you can pick and choose bits and even add them to your game. Yeah. I quite yeah. often like the idea of playing, say, a Milsham of War mission, but right, because the maelstrom and the of War missions are designed to be a mission that's independent of the deployment type you use because they say, you know, right, go randomise the deployment for this maelstrom mission. There's no reason why you can't yeah, use these deployment cards for that. I quite like doing that. I quite like playing a Maelstrom mission, but using one of these open war cards uh, for deployment. So you end up with an unusual or interesting deployment map. Um, and Or you can play uh, a mission using a battle zone, say, and add in one of the open war twist cards because again it's an overall gameplay effect so it doesn't affect the mission it doesn't affect the army composition you know you could just go let's play with a twist today well yeah. we're going to be uh, having plus one attack on everybody we're going to be having mm-hmm. i don't know uh, uh night fight as it were you know
1: yeah yeah and the is in the same way right it just um they <laughs> the way you've described them i, I must tell me we're not, Really used voozers even when we tried uh, using these um, uh, open world cards in the past. We didn't really use use uh, but they the way you describe them do kind of remind me of the special play cards in Blood Bowl, uh, where it's just something that, that changes a game in a short way uh, every now and again. And and that that is something I quite enjoy in Blood Bowl. So perhaps it's something I should I should look to try and, and use even if there's nothing else. Just the voozers cards in, in games in the
0: future. Yeah, like you can quite happily play your normal Maelstrom of war missions that you're used to playing and then you've got a, a whole range of things you can just add to make it slightly more interesting add a little tweak just a variety you can play with a battle zone you can play with an open war deployment you can play with some ruse cards you can use all of them at once so you can just cherry pick one or two you know you can add as much or as little customization to your missions as you want but it can provide some more Interesting ways to vary your gameplay compared to just yeah. being and repeating the same missions over bumps and bumps.
1: Yeah, and it you know it, it adds some more variety and interest. I mean, even though you're playing the same missions, you're not playing them the same way every time. Uh, and also, perhaps more importantly for me and you, it, it gives you a little bit more depth to the story of what's happening. So it's easier to build a narrative around why is this happening uh, or, or what's going on here. Why no, are to use my exactly. example from earlier? Why are grey knights fighting renegades? Grey knights usually battle demons, That doesn't make sense now, but it's because both sides are interested in this data that's coming down in this warp fragile battle environment. So then that starts to make sense. You can you can add up something that's that's nominally incongruous uh, and make
0: it into something that's a lot more uh, narrative. Yeah, exactly. That. So yeah, I I think people should definitely you know look into getting the open war cards. It's only uh I think it's less than a tenner when you know to buy them from a Games Workshop. Like but like just next time you place an order online, just see whether or not you fancy picking them up, give them a play yourself, you know, and uh, I think they're fun. And say yeah, like you can use them entirely the way they're intended as well to just generate an entire mission on the fly and it can create some really unusual and memorable games. So I enjoy using them and I, I would encourage others to do so yeah i certainly think i'll try and pick up some aspects of them in future games awesome uh so, so i think that was a, a good look at our spotlight topics so i think we'll move on now to just a little bit of uh, new releases and news from games workshop and then we'll look to sort of start wrapping things up i think so uh we'll be back in a minute are you enjoying the narrative wargamer podcast if you are why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative 40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. right we're back and we are now going to be talking about uh news and news releases so um up until basically earlier this week it was relatively quiet on the 40k front but one thing that had come out recently that you were quite interested in dave was the uh the new Necromunda Forces, weren't you yeah yeah uh, we, we both
1: play uh as well as 40k it's one of those games in the 40k stable that gives us uh quite a lot of fun and um the, the new Enforcers have uh, been released which is the new it's the Adeptus Arbites right, uh, gang gang for want of a better yeah. word for Necromunda. Um but the, the the figures that they've brought out are a little bit um, I think it's fair to say a little bit stockier than we were expecting uh, yeah. a little bit uh, more heavily armoured than most people were expecting um, and they they do look like normal human warriors uh, but you know properly tooled up properly kitted out with arms and equipment uh, which makes them quite useful candidates for use in 40k as well I think
0: um, yeah it's always great when any sort of new general aesthetic from like the 40k universe makes it into model format because it yep. opens up conversion opportunities so I know for starters I'd, I'd be interested in using some of these as um, veterans in my Imperial Guard
1: yeah I was thinking Scions but um, yeah any I mean we could even be line troopers
0: in the Imperial Guard depending on what kind of force that you want to, to put together but um, they, quite they do have for, a um, like Cadian Grenadiers like you know the guardsmen that yeah. are known for fighting in Carapace armour
1: that's exactly what I was going to say I mean they are
0: armoured in
1: Carapace armour but it's not the same style as the Cadian ones Right? it's a different style of armour which means that you can use as as, as either elite Cadians or a different kind of um, uh, K, uh, Carapace armoured troopers or even, I mean, other places where you have human warriors that are elite or heavily armed, perhaps um, uh, inquisitorial henchmen or something
0: like that. Uh, maybe yeah, something, something. you mentioned this before we started recording, and I think yeah. they would look really in as inquisitorial henchmen. Like, yeah. it, I think there's a good scope for conversion opportunity to sort of add personal heraldry and stuff, you know, um, and I think that would be a really, really good use of them. Yeah.
1: Well, you know... It, People I've seen used uh, the Inquisitorial list to make uh, rogue trader warbands uh, or armies and, uh, and things like that. Uh, um, uh, Imperial, namely uh, Imperial Navy armsmen, uh, any of those kind of you know different kind of human warriors. It's just another option. And I was really pleased to see
0: see that they're they're available there. I, I, I think can, there's going to be a lot of people using them for a lot of different things in 40k. So I think they were definitely yeah, worth yeah.
1: mentioning. We do quite regularly see when games which brings out new new things there are there are some things that sell out quickly and there's other things that 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 take a little a bit a little longer burn or are not quite as popular and i think those uh, i think those new uh arbiters will will be one of those that they've run out to stock off and they'll <laughs> be available for a while until they restock yeah I think maybe maybe i'm right maybe i'm wrong but i think they are going to be popular yeah uh,
0: but that's uh that's really just a, a quick little stop before we get to the the big news, really, in the world of forty k, yeah. which is the new uh, Codex Space Marines and the the new range of uh, Primaris units that are coming along with it. So, yeah,
1: absolutely. I, I I quite like Space Marines. I said that in the last episode. It's kind of one thing that I I quite like a lot of. And I I, I some people have a problem with the new Primaris, and I, and I really don't. I think it just gives us more options and more interesting to to what you can do uh, with our armies and the, the kind of battles we can have with them so i it took me by surprise uh, i don't know if you were expecting this to come out tony um, i don't think i was
0: expecting it to come out quite the way they've done it like it, the we also knew that codex space Force 2.0 was on the horizon in whatever form it was going to take yeah you know but there's they've Sort of really snuck in some extra units. It's just little things yeah. like the um, what are they called, like the the new multi-pack kit with the infiltrators. Um, I, there's yeah, I <laughs> I've not got my head around all of the new names. There. There's so many
1: uh, new names of units. i I've, I've got to get my head around. Them. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: oh yeah, totally. Um, so let me just bring them up. What are they? So. Duh, 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 duh. Like we, for example, we knew that the the new like hover rhino was coming. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah.
1: Hover seems to be a thing for the primaries. I don't, I, I don't know where that comes thematically. I, I don't particularly object to it, but there, there's an awful lot of jump and hover. Um, they, they, they. There's no, there's no tracked and wheeled so far for primaries, is it?
0: No, it's all these hover units. I think it's meant to be the advances in the technology that Cole right. was providing these Astartes. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. But then, the there's also the uh, the new war suit. What's it called? Yeah, the Invictor tactical war suit. That's basically like ah, the a, a stripped back Dreadnought frame.
1: Yes, I uh, the first time I saw it, I thought Dread Knight, actually. <laughs> um, it, it's not entirely dissimilar with a, a power armored Space Marine in charge of a combat walker, right? Although the difference with this new one is it's supposed to be a stealth one, right? Yeah, this thing's really cool. Like,
0: I mean, it has a heavy bolter for a pistol. <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. But yeah. I, I think it's definitely an interesting idea because it's because, like you mentioned, the like, Nemesis Dreadnought thing. It's going towards that space marine battle suit concept, which traditionally I haven't had a lot of. It's been more a tau thing, really. Um, yeah. But you know, marines in, in marines in marines sort of thing. <laughs> Yeah, uh, or I marine mean baby carrier, perhaps.
1: I think I think it is. I think it's uh, the aesthetics are a little bit odd, but it's it's no odder than um, Thunderwolf Cavalry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've that, to be we've fair, been yeah. there with odd aesthetics before. Uh, you know, I'm still fond of the squat bikers, but that's well, uh, okay. it's maybe just me. So, it's so I don't have a particular problem with the aesthetic, even though one or two of the individual units may look a little bit odd at first glance. But I think we'll, like many other things, that have come through. Okay, will quickly get used to quickly get used to them
0: well, I mean, I think it's interesting that the sort of focus on primaris units at the moment is more this sort of like spec ops and stealth tactics yep, like I feel like they're eventually gonna work their way through the range of aspects of war with the primaris range we like, will probably yeah. in the future get really heavy units you know like big guns well,
1: we, we did see the supers. heavy. We did see the heavy weapon drop tubes recently, didn't we? Uh,
0: uh, the suppressors, yes. That's right. Yeah. But they they still sort of feel a little like a borderline fast unit, you know, like a fast attack. Yeah.
1: Um. But 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 yeah. now I suppose we've got these two new units, the the infiltrators, right?
0: Uh, which are a different side, type of reaver, I suppose. Uh, well, I think they're more meant to be like a different type of tactical marine, really, the infiltrators. But you've got like, okay. two types now. You've got um. The infiltrators and I can't for the life of me find the thing that said what the other unit type was called. The Eliminators. No, not the Eliminators. There's a there's a new multi part kit with the infiltrators. So basically like an, another form of like tactical marine, as it were. Okay. Um yeah, yeah whatever, whatever they're, they're called. Pitch them yeah, whatever they're called, they're they're there and they they look cool. Um
1: but on top of that
0: there's um the first of the second the is that what they're called the incursors i just looked that up on Warhammer community i won't pretend i remembered it <laughs> yeah. yeah so it's like the incursors are this alternate uh unit choice where their whole deal is like finding enemies that are entrenched or hidden and like lighting them up you know like identifying them removing their cover saves all the rest of it and it's it sort of builds more into this concept of like spec ops warfare. And it's it's funny how, as the Primaris range has grown, I don't think that's what I anticipated them to, the direction of them to take them in initially. Yeah. But I do like it, you know. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I think it's one of the, it's something we've not seen so much in the last few years and from Space Music Games Workshop. Uh, Who've been seen as the super soldiers, but I think it was one of those earlier design concepts of space marines that they're starting to bring back, in that they were intended to be the elite, the the super troopers who could come in and do something special. And you see that in some of, some of the older novels. Um, there's there's one of the novels where they uh, there's a group of scouts abandoned on the planet, and they they take control of a titan, <laughs> um, in in a spec ops type raid, and these these scouts can do more than. And you would expect from just uh, you would ever expect from a, a, a normal human force uh, and they were just scouts, they weren't even the full marines, so that kind of comp- concept of they, they're elite and ten of them can take over a planet um, I think is not necessarily something we've seen manifest on the tabletop before, and I think this is this is a direction they're going with some of these new primaries releases that are upcoming But yeah, like, um, and then
0: we've got the the next generation of special characters that have become primaris marines so uh, uh, they crossed the primaris rubicon I think is the phrase they keep calling it isn't it yeah the, so they've now become primaris marines following in the steps of like Marnius Calga so yep. uh, we've got uh, is it chief librarian Tigerius of the yep. marines he's now primaris and he's got a nice you know, cool new looking model and um, it's got a very like strong pose to it, very, very sort of, like ultramarine. Yeah. Um, and then there's actually a new White Scars character. Is it Mister Kasaro Khan? Something similar. Yeah. I, I,
1: no, I think he's been a character that's been around in the background, but I Well, he's don't been around. He's been he's around a...
0: before. He's had models before. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. One of the things I have to say that I think is a bit odd of it is the fact that he's he's not going to have a bike option. <laughs> it seems. Um, no. No. He does have a cyber eagle. (laughs) Yeah. I I do love that in uh, the little bit of fluff for him, they've said that the reason he's become a Primaris is because when he heard that it was doable, when he heard about Calga achieving it, um, he saw it as an opportunity to become a better, stronger hunter and he demanded the opportunity to uh, take the Rubicon Primaris. (laughs) Regardless of what risks it might have incurred to him, he's like, nope. I yeah. demand equal
1: treatment I demand the opportunity to do this as well. Yeah, that's. I, I thought that I quite like that little bit of fluff, was it, as I was reading it on the warmer Community Society when, it, when, they, when they first got announced. One, <coughs> One of the things I quite uh, like and wasn't expecting was actually the White Scars being part of this release. Uh, it's not like you said, we yeah. knew eventually there will be coming to Space Marines 2 come along. You knew Ultramarines were going to be in there because they always are. They're, they're, they're the uh, the marketing tool that games are use, and, and And lots more people than admit to it like Ultramarines. Um, but White Scores took me by surprise. And they've not had a lot of love in the last few years. Uh, but there are dedicated fans out there who use them a lot. And they are quite, you know, they're a different style of Space Marine uh, army, especially with the, the, the volume of fast attack that they've got. And um, I'm quite tempted to... I've certainly pre-ordered Khan myself. (laughs) Um, And and because I've just coincidentally, in those last two games that I've played since the last podcast, I've had a a White Scars Terminator Captain and and a squad of tactical marines in there that I painted decades ago. Um, And there's always that fear of painting white is perhaps one of Mm -hmm. the things that holds people back on White Scars. But with the, the new Contrast Paint Apothecary, combined with, with, with normal white. Um, I, I can see myself being able to paint white scars, uh, and I'm quite tempted to put together a small force uh, based around uh, the new Primaries car model.
0: Uh, well, and it, that's so it, tempted me a lot more than I thought it would. Here's the thing that gets me about white scars being involved in this release, you know, with their own new supplemental codex and stuff. Currently... There are no Primaris bike units. And that's just the thing that throws me the most. Like, I I don't get how they can put such a spotlight on White Scars without them actually having fancy new bike units to use. I mean, yes, I know you can still use the classic tactical marine bikes, as it were, and that's going to be the selling point for now. But things like taking Khan and presumably removing his option to be on a bike... I mean, I might be wrong, this is just speculation at this point. There might be also primary spikes in there, we might possibly get models in the near future, but I just don't see it happening.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's perhaps one of the things that's going to change the flavour slightly. Or maybe it'll just increase the tactical options that White scales players choose
0: to take. I mean, uh, clearly, having the new, um, is it the Impulsor? Like the new Hover Rhino, I think is going yeah. to add opportunities for like the Rhino Rush sort of approach. Yeah, to say white the impulse service. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah and
1: that's you know having a tin box around you so you stay survivable longer until you get into close combat uh, and they, they,
0: they are going to be good in close combat I don't quite remember what the buffs are that Khan's going to bring well, to uh, so here's the other thing that I think is really interesting so in addition to obviously getting their new codex and the new models there's also been a smattering of new rules also creeping into the space marines so we know yeah. like, things like ball to drill um, has been around now in beta rules. We know they've recently just announced the new shock assault rule. So sort of the rule where basically in the first round of combat, the space marines get plus one attack, you know, which is great. And I think is actually going to do a lot of um, positive things for the space marine range. But one of the things that they're introducing in this new codex, which I think is possibly the strongest addition to the space marine uh, range in a long time, is the, um, the combat doctrines. Yeah. So... it's a really simple and clever system and it works a little bit like the um, I'm not sure if they're called Doctrines in the Death Watch but um, in the Death Watch book uh, your army always starts with like a tactic in play where they get uh, a bonus against a certain battlefield type of units like troops elites, heavies, fast attack whatever and periodically each turn all through stratagems and abilities they can switch which one is active now the new Codex Space Marines comes with this thing called Combat Doctrines where at the start of the first game, uh, the first battle round, the um, the Devastator Doctrine is in effect and that means that all your, I think it's all your heavy um, and, it might just be your heavy weapons, I can't remember, but basically like your heavy weapons, like well, last cannons, missile launchers, heavy flavors whirlwinds, whatever, that, um, all your heavy weapons. Um, have plus 1 AP, or miraculously, minus 1 AP. You know, One better AP. Um, so a last cannon will be AP minus 4, um, a heavy bolter will be AP minus 2, and so on. Yeah, it affects um, your grenade then, weapons as well as heavy. Is that what it was, was it? Grenade, heavy, yeah, yeah. Grenade weapons. Okay, cool. Um, then, from the second battle round onwards, if you choose, you can choose to advance your doctrines to the next doctrine, and it's like a flowchart. So you start on the Devastator Doctrine, and from turn two onwards, you can choose to advance to the Tactical Doctrine, um, which means that all your assault and rapid fire weapons get the better AP instead. So your heavy weapons and grenades will lose it, but your rapid fire and assault weapons will gain it. Um, and then from um, uh, any following turns after that, you can choose to advance to the Assault Doctrine if you want. Um, which means that all your assault weapons uh, get the pl- uh, be- pl- get the better
1: AP. Yeah, um, and, and in every case, it's an improvement to AP, isn't it? But yes. it's, it's uh, I think, the way it was described in the Warhammer community yeah. is the idea is it tries to implement the, the kind of shock and awe tactics that space Marines usually try and deploy, mm. where you hit them with heavy firepower you move into closer range and shoot them up with rapid fire and assault weapons and then you take them in close combat and, and each of those doctrines as you progress through that flowchart uh, gives, um, gives you that increased ability to, to, to get through uh, your opponent's armour because you're focused on the things that get
0: uh, are most effective at that point. Yes. This, I think, is a brilliant addition to the Space Marines because I actually think this is something which makes Space Marines less generic. It makes them something special about them the fact that they have the combat doctrines you know every army tends to have something that's a little bit unique or special about them you know orcs have daka daka and mob rule tau have like um, marker lights and uh, to create a good you know um, most armies have something which uh, like imperial guard have orders um, and stuff like that Uh, everyone tends to have something that makes their army a little bit unique thing that they that only they do. The Space Marines have never really often had that because they've been the universal unit. So everything else is deviant from the archetype of Space Marine. Well, whereas now, the Combat Doctrine is something that is going to be very unique to Space Marines. And I think it's a brilliant way of making you feel like, oh, I'm playing a Space Marines, but I have to remember that they play with Combat doctrines. Like when you play against Tau, you're like, oh, I have to remember that units can overwatch for each other. It's something that you as the opponent are going to have to think, right, I am playing this army. This is their gimmick. This is their thing that they do. Now Space Force yeah, not, has
1: something like that as well. Not just your opponent. Me, myself, I have trouble remembering chapter tactics. Like, <laughs> or, or even the fact I've given somebody a particular piece of uh, artifact war gear. <laughs> so it's it's one more thing that's going to cause me confusion. But I uh, uh, I do like the flavor of it. I do, I do yeah. think if once I've got my head around it, it will. There's more to do with me than, than other players. Um, and I, I and do like it. I think it will come through to really well and give us that good flavour. You're
0: right, Space Marine players have not quite had so much in the past. Yeah. And then one thing that they've done um, as well is that in addition to the release of this new codex, they're also releasing these supplements for White Scars, Ultra and there's like five, four or five other confirmed supplements so we don't know what they're going to be. But presumably, it'll probably be the majority of the first founding chapters, so Salamanders, yeah, and of his so on. Now, these go, these like supplements are going really in-depth on the rules of those chapters and how they fight. And mm-hmm. um, they've added some really clever little things in there. So, for example, in the White Scars book, you're talking about them in devastating combat. Now, yep. they have a special rule called devastating charge, which is basically an amplified version of the assault doctrine. And the Ultra have something similar where their supplement, they have an amplified version of the tactical doctrine. And I reckon that's going to be a theme running for all these supplements, that each chapter is particularly good at a certain one of the doctrines. Yep. So the White Scars, whilst the assault doctrine is active, when resolving an attack made of a melee weapon by a model with disability ability um, that has made a charge move or performed a intervention this turn, add one to the damage characteristic of that weapon. So suddenly, your sp- your white scar Bikes, like the standard Biker's chainsaw Attacks are damage two on the Terminator charges. Yeah. And are uh, AP minus one because the Assault Doctrine's in effect. If he, if he does all this whilst the Assault Doctrine is in effect. Yeah, my Thunderhammer Terminator Captain just got a bit better, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and like, whereas like the ultramarines one, um, whilst the Tactical Doctrine's in effect, their units basically count as stationary even if they move. So that means that they can rapid fire at full distance. They can fire heavy weapons without penalty because yeah. they're experts at moving around, like being maneuverable whilst maintaining tactical fire. Yeah. You know, and I'm guessing most of the supporters are going to have something to this effect for each chapter, you know, that will be something along the lines of they're particularly good at one aspect of the combat doctrines. Mm-hmm. So...
1: It'll be it'll be interesting to see how they
0: differentiate,
1: there's some different... Focuses of, of chapters that seem normally cinemal. So, so how they do it with Blood Angels compared to White's cards, which are both close combat focused primarily. Um, not not entirely, of course, in either case, but uh, mm-hmm. that is is kind
0: of their thing in both cases. Um, the it same might be with um, Blood Angels. It might be any unit that has the uh, jump keyword gets an enhancement yeah. of the assault doctrine and or whatever. The
1: Imperial and Crimson Fist uh,
0: with the Ultimates as well. I mean, that- I was surprised if the Imperial Fist got enhanced the Heavy Doctrine because they're better at you know, yeah, destroying be. structures. Don't they well, have a, a boast
1: firing against buildings
0: as well at the moment?
1: I suppose that gives them a differential. Mm. Uh, but we'll see. We'll have to see what yeah. comes out. point is, it's very exciting times
0: to be a Space Marine player. Like I do think that perhaps this is the um, the precursor to new codexes and army books moving forwards um, for the rest of 8th edition because everyone's got their initial codex now. Maybe now we start going to like Codex 2.0s and supplemental products yeah. and all sorts. And as a narrative player, I think that's going to be great. I think mean, it's going to be really going yeah. to really drill down deep into what it means to be a Death Skull player, to be a, yeah. a Craft World way player. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think it's going to be just another excellent layer of com- not complexity, but an extra layer of uh, immersion in the yeah. game. No, I think that's going to be
1: quite interesting. I think the one thing we've not said about the space marine releases that, that bears, uh, bears stating explicitly is that the, there's a lot of focus on, on on the primaries, the new primaries, the new kinds of units that can come through and the different chapters, tactics and doctrines. But when you look on the store and the, the preview pre-releases, they're re-releasing some regular marine, marine units. They're re-releasing um, scouts, for example. Um, they're re-releasing the... Um, uh, the uh, the rhinos, the razorbacks, and the predators, uh, which uh, can't carry primaries, right? Um, so they're not. There's always there's been that long-standing fear among some members in the space marine player community that that they they're just trying to get rid of the old marines and replace everything with primaries, and that that doesn't really seem to be accurate. There's there's a lot of emphasis on primaries because they're new and they've got new rules, but they don't seem to be getting rid of the legacy space
0: marines, at the, you know, in the same way that some people fear. I mean, I don't think it's possibly going about uh, in such a heavy-fisted way that people will be afraid might happen, but I think it's probably on the distant horizon. And I think it's been handled very nicely and in a a, a fair and even-handed way. But um, I personally think that it probably is starting to make a shift. This is the first real shift towards Primaris being the future of the Space Marine range. Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of truth in that but it,
1: they certainly they,
0: they're not dropping regular Marines Oh the no, they're, either. Not. they're not at all yeah, yeah. Um, So yeah, that's that's all the sort of news and new releases that uh, we've got time to talk about really because there's plenty of other things yeah. going on but you know, we're also getting a bit long now on the podcast so um, I think we'll just move into our last little section of the show which is just going to be uh, a few little shout outs and announcements so we'll be back in a second guys right guys so we're basically uh, at the end of the show now and just before we head out the door i just want to give a little shout out to uh, one or two little uh, people in the community so uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks i have recently discovered a a youtube channel uh, by the name of Grim resolve and um, i've been really enjoying his stuff And I would encourage anyone that's listening to go check them out because he's one of the few people that I've seen who's actually been uh, filming like proper narrative battle reports, stuff using things like the Crucible of War missions from Vigilus. And uh, I think they're great. He's been, you know, reenacting a load of the uh, story missions and events from the Vigilus campaign and uh, really enjoyed his stuff. So, um, yeah, I'd love to give a little shout out there to Grim Resolve over on YouTube and... uh, if you're interested in narrative gameplay and narrative battle reports he's pretty much doing the sort of things that i'm hoping we will eventually be able to build up to here on our channel and one day soon you know i'll be able to produce some narrative battle reports of my own and uh, it's great to see someone else doing this sort of thing in a, a world of otherwise quite competitive battle reps so i, I think yeah i'll have to go and look that up yeah um but otherwise that's pretty much everything from us here today Um, If you have been listening to the show and enjoying it, then definitely go check us out on Facebook. uh, Find me on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the description below this video. Uh, Go check out our 40k uh, articles over on narrativeboardgamer.wordpress.com and if you would like to support the show you can do from as little as $2 a month over on Patreon and it would really help us with developing uh, the production quality of the show help us improve the range of content we can create, and the say the eventual aim is to actually expand out into doing battle reports and all sorts of YouTube content. Uh, but first of all, you know we just need to cover production costs of the podcast really. So um, if you're enjoying it, that is a great way to help support us. If you want to support us without uh, having to invest anything <laughs> financially, then you can uh, give us five star reviews or any positive feedback on your podcast platform of choice it does help people find the show it helps make suggestions for new listeners um, and obviously just spread the word like if you've been enjoying the show and you think anyone else in your play group would enjoy it as well then let them know about it um, and you can write into the show with us questions suggestions feedback anything you fancy at narrative at gmail.com uh, I've said before I'm always happy to have anyone on the show if they want to come join in uh, next episode, I think I will actually be having um, a interview with a fellow content creator and blogger so that'll be interesting. Um, so I'm slowly starting to draw in some uh, some names in the community so uh, I'm looking forward to that, but I always want to hear from more people. so if you want to be a guest on the show, if you've got a topic you'd like to talk about, Or, you know, if you're enjoying that much, you'd actually like to come join us on a semi-regular basis, then definitely drop me um, a message over at the email and I'd love to hear from you. Now we'll get back to you as soon as I can. So um, anything else from you, Dave, uh, before we head out the door?
1: No, no, I just need to uh, finish up what I'm doing and come home back to the UK. So
0: uh, the next time (laughs) we record, we're in the same time zone, Tony.
1: Yes. (laughs)
0: Hopefully that will make (laughs) things a bit easier next time. So, uh, yeah, so... Thanks again for listening, guys. Let us know all about your sort of uh, narrative games and all the wonderful things you get to do. Have fun, guys.